Welcome, everybody, to the first of the last of the lost. Not sure where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the first of the lost episodes of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. Hello. I have a cold. I sound very beautiful, I know. Lovely, as always. (laughs) So yeah, we never really fully announced that we did actually end I Hate Love Remakes. I think I mentioned on Twitter, but we've kind of forgot to put a post up on the site. Mm -hmm. Because I think our last episode was the Godzilla remake. Yeah. What was that, 2015? 2014. Yeah. It's 2014. So it's 2014. So three years later, (laughs) we are announcing that, oh, by the way, we did stop recording episodes. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, we actually have like a glut of podcasts, like there's 1800 just waiting to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we've been stockpiling. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, yeah. Sorry, everyone that we kind of just dropped off. We've been busy, you know, life, adulting, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. I don't care for adulting, but I've been going with it. Most of our listeners will probably know I did actually go off and do some other shows. I've been doing a show called Masters of Carpentry, going through all of John Carpenter's stuff. I've been spending a few years doing other projects. Evie's been adult. Yep. Because, oh, I'd have to edit this myself. No, that's not going to. Yeah. I Hate Love Remakes was a wonderful show. It's something I would actually like to go back and revisit, either pick it up again in a few years or come back for like an occasional special. So we're not like fully saying it's over. It's done. We're never doing it again. Okay. Because I burned down the studio already. So. Okay. Well. Awkward. We can probably lease someone else's. Okay. Okay. You got to pay for it, though. Okay. But you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Because I burned it down, I feel like it's only fair. And again, Evie has been joining me on the John Carpenter Show. I have some other podcast series that are going to be coming up. This episode might actually be coming out after the Carpenter Show is done, in which case I'll be on another series. And Evie will be guesting on that, too. So it's (laughs) like Evie and I, we are still doing things. It's not like we parted on a uh, never speaking to you again type way. It's true. I mean, at one point, I believe we declared pistols at dawn, but then we realized that we would have to wake up at dawn, and we were like that. No. It was lovingly pistols at dawn. Yes. You were only going to lovingly fire shots. (laughs) Shots of friendship. Shots of alcohol. Oh, that would have been a very interesting version of the duelists. (laughs) Just them getting drunk. All the duels are just jello shots, yeah. The thing about A Hail of Remakes, while I enjoyed it, I created the show because there were points that I wanted to make about remakes and how people are so quick to dismiss remakes. I feel we kind of made that point and I just felt like we were just kind of making that point over and over again (laughs) because we had a lot of episodes where the remakes were good. Sometimes they were better. Sometimes while they weren't better, they were still good movies in their own right. And then every once in a while, we had something like Ocean's Eleven, where the original was so painful. So bad. Oh, my God. Like, I'm glad they had fun with their friends, but like that movie sucked. So bad. Oh, my God. It was awful. You know, I hate love remakes. At least I just kind of burned out on it. I think part of it was we could never quite figure out the best format for covering both movies because we would like record two episodes at once or like within a Mm -hmm. week of each other. But, you know, I got to say, for a show that was my first podcast series, it was a wonderful learning ground. It was wonderful getting to do it with you, Evie. Lies, but sure. Truths. (laughs) It was wonderful getting all the friends on that we had to come in and discuss all those (laughs) movies with us. It was wonderful. And I Hate Love Remakes is something that I wish we could have had like a better finale that we had gone out on instead of just kind of petering out. And that's on me that I just kind of petered out (laughs) on. Yeah, but I'm like, it is what it is. It is what it is. And at least we went out on Godzilla 2014. 
But you know, hey, at least we have a few episodes now that we can go out on, including one that was intended to be our finale. That's true. This is the first of four episodes, the lost episodes of I Hate Love Remakes, that one of these was the last episode we recorded, but three of these, we sat on them for various reasons. There were various either issues happened or there was a scheduling thing that happened. It kind of just kept sitting on the back burner until we get it out. And the first of these is The Mummy. With my best friend. We recorded this episode in our first year of the show. So we've been sitting on this one for years. And this one is literally because of sound quality. That is my fault. And that's because you had your friend Steph over and you were both sharing a mic. Yeah. And we did not get you on a good mic. No, because my mic is garbage. And I think we had you two both a little too far away from the mic. Which is funny because we were holding it up right up to our faces too. So Really? That gives you an idea of how shitty this mic was. Wow. Yeah, no, that mic is gone. It's now gone to, I believe, the recycling. So the main reason I sat on this episode for so long is because Steph was someone that we couldn't really just very easily re-record with. Yeah, because she's out in Ontario. So we couldn't be like, hey, can you just hop on in the middle of, you know, being amazing and also learning and stuff? And I still thought that even though it wasn't the easiest to hear, we had a really good discussion and she Mm -hmm. had some amazing observations and points. And I didn't want to just throw that away. So I would always keep backburnering this one. And every now and then, this is an episode that I literally did edit over the course of four or five years. I would keep poking at it and trying to clean up as much of it as I could, just so it's at least listenable. It's not perfect. And there are even chunks that I had to cut out just because it was so garbled. But I think it's still a good discussion. And I think the other reason we sat on it was because then the Wolfman remake came out. Yeah. And we were like, hey, we compare them together. And then I think there was also talk of doing a Creature from the Black Lagoon remake. Mm -hmm. So we were like, hey, we can do a three-parter. And of course, that never happened. And then the Wolfman, we'll get into the Wolfman issues. (laughs) (laughs) That's for another day. But it's just one of those ones that we just always had reasons to keep sitting on. And even now, I'll admit, the audio quality at times is such that if people don't make it through the entire episode, I don't blame them for it. If you do stick it out, I think it's still an episode worth listening to. I should also point out, we recorded this well before the Tom Cruise mummy was even a thing. So that is not going to be part of the discussion in this episode. Which I, why? Oh, I love that trailer. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Mission Imhotep. This is how much I've grown as an adult is that before I'd be like, rant, rant, rant. And I'm just like, okay. We started this series when we were in our 20s. Yeah, we were babies. We were like actual babies. It was such a different time. Mm -hmm. A screaming carrot demon wasn't president. (laughs) Nazis weren't like a thing that were acceptable. Yeah. And then I also want to point out, you don't hear us make mention of the Hammer Mummy films. Because I know the first of those was actually a remake of two of the Universal ones. Because we were actually thinking that we were actually going to then do a follow-up episode that would then cover those two Universal sequels that were then remade as the first Hammer one, but we just kind of never got around to it. And I think you especially weren't really that interested. The Hammer Horror never really did anything for me. Yeah. I think that's part of it, is I'm like, I know there are people who have like the fondest of memories of it. And I'm like, I am not one of those people. Hammer is one of those things where I think the first few that you see are really striking and interesting, but then you start to realize they're all the exact same movie using all the exact same sets and costumes and actors and the same writers and directors, and they all look and feel exactly the same. 
So it's like whatever is your introduction to Hammer will probably leave an impression on you. But the further you go into Hammer, the more you're just going to be let down. Mm -hmm. I still haven't watched those yet, and I would still be curious to someday. But then again, that's also why we didn't discuss any of the Universal Mummy sequels, because we were thinking we would cover them there. So we did not bring them up in the episode. So this is just purely the Universal, the first Mummy, the Brandon Fraser Mummy, Stephen Summers, and then the Brandon Fraser sequels, at least up until... I can't remember if in this episode we mentioned part three. Yeah, yeah, we did. We mentioned part three. Part three had come out by that point. Yeah, Scorpion King had not had any sequels yet, I think. (laughs) How is the Scorpion King still getting sequels? They're still doing Scorpion King movies. Which I'm like, how are they even doing that? He was the bad guy in the movie. Well, granted, they're all prequels because they're all a younger actor. But I don't understand how that's become a little direct-to-video franchise that can because they keep making them. (laughs) It's kind of fascinating. So anyways, without further ado, here are both parts. I've just kind of lumped together both the uh, original and remake version of The Mummy. Enjoy. The Rock for President 2020? <laughs> there, That's all I got. That's all I got. Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and... I think TV. I might have dropped the F-bomb one. So oh, well, that, oh dude, we have swear. you not heard how many of our episodes? I said fucking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we opened up Miracle on 34th Street with a pubic hair joke. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> that's why we do a warning at the beginning that we have strong language. Yeah, I'm like, then no one can be like, what happened? I was not expecting this, sir. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to part one of I Hate Love Remakes episode. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. My niece is Batman now. <laughs> is your niece Danny Pudi? No, but my sister sent me a picture of her napping in a Batman shirt, so she's Batman now. That's how it works. As long as it's not the Frank Miller goddamn Batman, because nobody needs that. Oh, that's me. You want the Frank Miller Batman. (laughs) Sure, then I can just sit around saying goddamn all the time. Goddamn crime and my goddamn having to fight it. I have had it with this goddamn crime in this goddamn city. Goddamn orange juice expired. Now have to go buy goddamn more at the goddamn store. Damn you, you goddamn god. (laughs) <laughs> so evie you want to introduce us to our special guest this week no because you do the introductions <laughs> what am i doing your job now yes yes you are i'm foisting it all upon you <laughs> yeah he pays me nothing it's the same that he gets <laughs> damn this month we are joined by my best friend staff who i've known since like ninth grade of high school yeah oh god i'm so <laughs> That's a little depressing when you put it that way. <laughs> okay, we're going to need a break for some therapy time here. I'm still young and viable. Hello, everybody. I'm fine. Goddamn aging. <laughs> well put, Noel. Well put. So, Steph, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm originally born and bred BCer. Then I moved out to Ontario because that's where my training program is. I'm specializing in cancer treatment. Mm. I miss BC and actual mountains and trees that are not only eight feet tall, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) So, as will become abundantly apparent, I'm not very good when it comes to pop culture. Ev has this uncanny ability for me to say something incredibly vague about a movie and then she can somehow figure out what it is I'm thinking. (laughs) I once figured out she was talking about ginger snaps, about two girls, and then something about a wolf. It was impressive. (laughs) Okay, so we'll let you take care of the synopses this time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, this is going to go well. (laughs) Shit happened in the end. (laughs) (laughs) So Evie, you want to tell us what we're going to be discussing? No, but I will. 
Today we're going to be discussing The Mummy from 1932. Yes, The Mummy, directed by Carl Freund, written by Nina Wilcox Putnam, Richard Scheer, and John L. Belderson. Are we familiar with any of these people? Nope. No. I know this was Carl Freund's directorial debut after he was a cinematographer on Dracula and a number of other Universal Monster movies. I was going to say I knew Boris Karloff from some of the other movies, but that was about the extent. <laughs> and then John L. Balderston is the uh, playwright who also wrote the Universal Dracula adaptation and the Broadway play version that it was based on. Oh, okay. So yeah, the original Dracula wasn't based on the novel. It was based on a play that was based on the novel. <laughs> a couple more steps in between. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. I'm still light on the Universal monsters. I've only seen a handful of them. I haven't really liked many of them. Mm -hmm. I like Creature from the Black Lagoon, but that's kind of late period. Evie, are you a Universal monster fan? Eh, that's my thoughts on the Universal monster movies. Like, I've seen some. I can tell you that. They're ripe for remake. I can say that much. I think yeah. they're interesting as a historical icon, mm -hmm. but a lot of them really don't hold up all that well. You do get some good makeup and like yeah. practical effects that they did in the movies. It says a lot, though, that the one that probably holds up the best is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> which not only was like a dead-on spoof of the series, but it was actually like the epic finale for Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. That was like the end of that era. I don't know what you're talking about. Frankly, I think Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even seen that one yet. It's on my Wolfman DVD set. Okay. See, I've seen the first Wolfman. The Wolfman's not bad. <laughs> a little slow. Like, I still haven't seen the original Dracula and Frankenstein all the way through. I've seen parts of them, I just can't get into them. Yeah, I've had sort of the same issue with them, where I watched a bit of it, and then I still can't quite get into it, and I end up doing something else. Yeah. I think by the time Creature from the Black Lagoon came, that was like 20 years later in the 1950s, mm -hmm. and so the technique had evolved a bit, the story moves a little quicker, there's a lot more going on. Plus, the creature just looks awesome. Yeah. So, do we want to go ahead and jump into a synopsis? Well, I may as well. Okay. There was a mummy. <laughs> Stuff happens. <laughs> Somebody apparently made money. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In 1921, archaeologists Wemple and Muller discovered the mummy of Imhotep in Egypt. He was buried alive with protective spells and his casket defaced as a punishment for blasphemy. When a man opens the box that says not to open it and reads from the scroll within, the scroll of Toth, Imhotep awakens and shuffles off with the squirrel, leaving the man mad with fright. Ten years later, Wemple's son, Frank, is led to the tomb of Princess Anaksu Namun by Ardith Bey, a mysterious Egyptian man. And I have no idea if I'm pronounced Anaksu Namun right. Both movies pronounce it differently and spell yeah. it in a way that's completely different than how it's pronounced, so... It's all good. Anyways, the findings go on display at the Cairo Museum. Ardith Bey, in reality Imhotep, uses the scroll of Toth to try to resurrect Anaksu Namun, but instead reawakens her reincarnated soul in the young socialite Helen Grosvenor. Wimple and Muller get in the way of Imhotep, getting their hands on the scroll and preventing him from taking Helen, who Frank is instantly madly in love with. But Wemple is soon dead of a magical waiting pool-induced heart attack, and Imhotep once again has the scroll. And soon he even has Helen in his dwelling, revealing that Anaksuna Moon was his love who died of a tragic illness and how he was damned to a living death when he stole the scroll of Toth in an attempt to resurrect her. Muller and Frank make plans to follow Helen the next time she's summoned by Imhotep, but Frank is struck by the same waiting pool heart attack that hit his father, and Helen finds herself in the Cairo Museum, looking upon the mummy of her past life while Imhotep prepares to kill her, mummify her, and rebirth her as an immortal like himself. Imhotep is distracted when Muller and Frank show up, allowing Helen to break away and pray to a statue of Isis. The statue comes to life, 
burning the scroll of Toth and smiting Imhotep into a pile of bones. So, Evie, do you recommend this movie? Eh? Yeah? It's not an enthusiastic recommend. It's more of a, this movie has a really great idea, but it's not fully fleshed out, and it's not really able to be fully realized because of the constraints of budget and just the technology and the ratings board or whatever it was that they had back then, the decency board. Mm-hmm. The effects are kind of cool, though, some of them. So they got that. Mm-hmm. It's I'm, a myth. Yeah, it's. I guess if you're going through the Universal Monster movies, yeah, check it out. But otherwise, eh, you don't have to rush out and see it. Steph, do you recommend this movie? Kind of. Yeah. It's too bad because I really wanted to like this movie. I've got me onto a lot of this era of movies, and there are some really, really excellent ones. You know, I went into this going, oh, this is going to be cool. And the premise is great. You know, it had a lot of potential, but it just... Whether it was how long the movie was, or how they set it up, the effects, or the budget, it just didn't live up to its full potential. You know, the other thing too is like, granted, yes, the special effects are not going to be there. It's the 1930s, and the acting is a little more nuanced, because it's the actors that are carrying the movie more than, you know, special effects. But, I don't know, it's sort of, yeah. I can't recommend this movie. I do like the setup. It is an interesting setup. I like how it builds off of the whole curse of King Tut that was like the big news story of the time. And I like that they set up the villain as a kind of romantic anti-hero who's just trying to get the love of his life back. And I like the makeup effects, but there's not really much else to like. I mean, you have the one bit of Boris Karloff as the mummy and the rest of the time he's just a gaunt Egyptian man standing stiffly and staring at people in a very uncomfortable closeness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is really awkward for everyone involved. Yeah. I, yeah. He's like the close talker from uh, Seinfeld. <laughs> exactly. I don't really find any of the leads all that compelling or interesting. Helen has some interesting moments, but Frank is a complete waste. The two elderly scientists don't really do much of anything except be there. And the big problem is, and this is pretty well known among historians and cultures, is the guy who wrote this, who also wrote the Universal Dracula, he pretty much just took his script for Dracula and just redid it beat for beat here. The way the story is laid out, the type of characters, you have the Van Helsing character, you have the Mina Harker character, you have... it's You don't need to see this if you've seen Dracula, because you've, you've seen this story already. The only bits that are really worth watching are maybe the opening 10 minutes and then the origin story of Imhotep, and then maybe the climax. The climax is decent, except for the complete deus ex machina of Isis suddenly decides to come down and save the day. Magic Isis! (laughs) (laughs) I just don't find it all that well made. It doesn't feel like anyone really had much passion for it. Everything just kind of feels dull and drags out. Part of that is the period, but I just don't see much enthusiasm behind the scenes, and it doesn't really give me much enthusiasm. So it's worth checking out as a historical relic because it is part of the Universal Monsters canon and that was a very influential set of films, but doesn't necessarily make it a good film. And I can't recommend it. You know what it almost feels like? Like a contractual obligation. Yeah, it does. Like, oh, your vampire one did really good, so uh, we need a couple more monsters. We need to spit out another thing like that. Maybe do something Egyptian. That's really trendy right now. Exactly. They're so in right now. (laughs) Oh my god, mummies so have to do one. Exactly. I mean, if they had put more focus on the whole story of Imhotep and Anaxu Namun, instead of just doing this whole beat-by-beat thing, 
it maybe would have worked. I mean, I, there was actually this entire sequence that was cut from the film where they showed Anoxu the Moon being reincarnated over the years. Like she was a Christian who was thrown to the lions, or she was a villager in a village that was attacked by Vikings. She was a queen of France. And just this whole life chain of Anoxu the Moon as she never was able to find love because her love was locked away in this box, never able to get free. Right. I thought that would have been an interesting layer, and they filmed this entire thing. There's actually stills of it. I think that would have given this the weight it needed. That would have been cool to see, because one of my complaints with this film is the characters aren't well fleshed out. No. You don't get a feel for what's going on with what the interactions between them are. Like, especially between Frank and Helen, it's all of a sudden, it's, they don't show you that they're feeling amorous towards each other. They just sort of tell you, and then it's like, oh, well, this is what it is. Though that's something that they did in a lot of movies. Though sometimes you'd get actors who actually had the chemistry. But with the two of these ones, these guys did not have. Am I the only one who, when they're like, he's leaning over her on the couch, like trying to kiss her, I'm like, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Like she looks uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh god, when is it lunch? She looks really want a sandwich right now. She almost looked terrified to me. Like I don't want to be near this guy. Yeah. That's the most horribly rapey love scene ever. I know. It's just out of nowhere. And then it's followed by her and Boris Karloff just up in each other's face, just staring at each other. That was funny. <laughs> that and one was interesting. And she had better chemistry with Karloff. Boris Karloff. Exactly. I don't know. I just found it kind of ironic when, like, the doctor's talking about, oh, I can see you two are attracted. And I'm like, oh, is that what it is? <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Well, it's a good thing you told us because Thanks. I would not have picked up on that. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, he's instantly flirting with her. And I can see you're attracted by, oh, I walked into the room and the two of you are already making out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly okay to just start making out with the very confused distressed woman who just fainted after being led hypnotically to the museum and had some sort of spell (laughs) mind you i'm like you know we're supposed to be cheering for i guess frank and helen and i'm just like but emotep's reasons are i'm kind of all for him and the fact that it's a little more compelling when you hear his story yeah if anything it would have been more interesting to treat him more as the hero and frank as the guy who gets in the way of it Yeah. Well, that's the way I read it. I'm just like, most tragic enough story ever. Would have been a little probably more challenging than they were willing to go at the time. Well, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work. The character stories don't work. I mean, you have that great setup, and then they just threw it into a very formulaic script that just, it isn't able to hold it up. It just becomes very mediocre. I don't even think it's mediocre. I just think it's bland and boring. They're not even trying. Like, mediocrity would at least raise us up a bit. It's more just, let's get actors standing around in a room saying their lines. Because I'm like, at least... Come on, people! We have two hours to film this thing, and then you can go on with your lives. Yeah. (laughs) Mediocre is Dino Shark. I can laugh at Dino Shark. Yeah. I can laugh at Shark to Puss. That's mediocrity. They're not trying. But this, it's like, meh. It's called meh the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's trying. This was a paycheck for everyone involved. Yeah. Contractual obligation. Exactly. I mean, like the guy who plays Muller is the guy who played Van Helsing in Dracula, and he's essentially playing the same character and just phoning it in. Um, The Nubian? Yeah, the blackface manservant. I don't, I'm so confused. It's because he's a native, he can instantly a slave to Imhotep. He's hypnotized. Yeah. Yeah. Back to that, quote, simple-minded thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love how he's just an obvious white stuntman caked in brown paint. (laughs) Yeah. In, in like, shoe polish or something. Yeah. 
At least they didn't do like the big white lips. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's gonna happen later when it's Al Jolson and the jazz singer. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that's a remake. We have to do that at this point. I don't know if they actually credited it as a remake, and I really don't want to watch either of those. <laughs> yeah, they did. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Isn't that the one with Barry Manilow? Yeah. Okay, God. the words during that podcast are going to be cards on the table. I'm really high right now. <laughs> and then I'm going to try to eat the microphone. <laughs> I'm not recording if you're high. <laughs> That's the only way we can record that. Evie, stop it in the remote. Dude, it looks delicious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Evie, are you throwing on the mic? No. So back to the mummy. <laughs> it's like the only sequence that I really like in this movie is the whole flashback sequence. Yeah, well, that and the part at the beginning where you have Karloff, mm-hmm. he gets up and he moves out. Yeah, the intro where it's he first wakes up and then just decides to go for a stroll. I love that he doesn't even have to do anything to the other guy. He just freaks him out so much. And I love that they don't show him. They only show you that one brief shot of him. Yeah, and then you get, like, the bandages as they're moving out of the room. And then the handprint, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Or, like, the little movements in the hands where you can see him just starting to, yeah. That whole sequence was really well done. And I do like the shots of him just staring at the camera with his eyes start to glow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way they've done the makeup on him where you can see, like, the cracks and wrinkles on the face, that I liked. So, mind you, they do that, and then they have, like, that still shot close-up that they just, like, throw over things sometimes. I'm like, why is this here? I know, it looks so obvious. Well, that's just, you know, him using his hypnosis. They have to show. nothing, though. Like, sometimes nothing even comes of it. So, I'm like, so we're just sort of like, oh, we haven't used this shot. No, when he uses it, it's when he, you know, lures Helen to the temple where he tells her the history. He uses it when he gives Frank the heart attack. No, there's a couple of times... And he uses it on the Nubian, but I thought there was yeah. a couple of other ones as well where it's sort of just thrown in, or at least that's yeah. what it felt like. Yeah, I think there's a couple of scenes where it's basically, I guess, their implication is that he made this shit happen because they threw that shot in there. But otherwise, uh, yeah, that it, like that's, that's yeah. not doesn't really make sense why it's there otherwise. It's still a neat shot, though. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a great still that they're <laughs> using. It's just, yeah, they, they did overuse it a bit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what I liked about the whole flashback sequence is that they shot it like a silent movie. Mm-hmm. It's even slightly sped up like an old silent movie. I was surprised that they had the level of violence than they did when they threw the spears through the slave diggers. Yeah, that, that you get one that actually like fully turns to the camera and it's yeah, right. sticking out. Yeah, blood all over. Yeah, it was. Uh, if only the rest of the movie could have been like that. And I love that he has this magical waiting pool, the magical heart attack inducing <laughs> waiting pool. <laughs> Which looks like a TV screen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. There's not even any ripples. He gets good reception on that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, maybe we should all switch to like side. You can like picture a new the Nubian up on the roof fixing the antenna. <laughs> no, a little to the left. Left beach. No, my left. That's what happened to the dog. He dropped the antenna on it. I, they don't show you that, and they're like, I just have a vision of a white cat. I'm like. What? That's right. The cat killed the dog. Yeah. That was an interesting idea, but they didn't really execute it all that well. Because well, they didn't really show it for whatever reason. I'm like, yeah. they showed a spear through a sleigh, but this apparently, no, 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 too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you couldn't just show the dead dog with the cat hissing on top of it? Yeah. No, apparently that would have been... Well, it wouldn't be a real dead dog. It would have... Well, well, yeah. At the time, maybe it would have been, but anyways... Either way, apparently the cat was like, fuck you guys. I'm taking lunch! <laughs> we'll just staple his paws to the dog. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the things...
things that really bugged me, actually, is the fact that, and they don't really acknowledge it in this movie, that you have these archaeologists who are coming in and are really disrespecting the culture. That's an accurate reflection of kind of how it was at the time. No one basically addresses that that's why this stuff could be happening to them. I know. I love how they, like, see a seal. Oh, look, it's sealed by the pharaoh. Let's cut it open. <laughs> yeah, it's like no one actually thinks, you know, maybe this is sealed for... Re like, it's not even, like, a possibility. They're like, yeah, let's fucking crack it open. But again, this was the big news story of King Tut and the curse there of these people are being punished for fucking around where they didn't belong. Well, excavating in Egypt at that time, it was a bit of the Wild West. Yeah. Archaeologists, the whole practice had sort of yet to be refined. A lot of these people were really... Grave robbers. Yeah. Exactly. They were official grave robbers. Maybe they had done a little bit of reading firsthand, but, mm -hmm. you know, essentially that's what a lot of them were. And it wasn't until... You know, you started getting some of the ones that were actually took a little more scholarly approach to it. This is other people's history. Like, let's be a little respectful about this. Well, I think that was when Egypt finally got more power and more control over how their own country was excavated. Because <laughs> I think before it was, you know, the Royal British Empire was in charge of everything. No, it was the French. The French. Okay. England and France split up who was going to control what in Egypt. Okay. The Department of Antiquities. And that is why stuff is here. <laughs> okay. And then the uh, the museum at Cairo, who controlled that? Uh, the French. French. So that's why when you look it up originally, I can't remember the exact name for it anymore, but it's in French. Okay. The Musée de very, uh, very French all, title. All the early curators were from France. Okay. Not to say that the British weren't mucking around in there equally, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any knowledge on the real Imhotep that you could share with us? Okay, so I looked him up a bit. <laughs> I know he's not quite as represented. Yes. So I looked him up a bit because I was kind of curious, too, and I wanted to see, well, how much of this did they make up, and how much of this did they actually take from accurate stuff? And Yeah, I'm a nerd. Deal with it. <laughs> oh, my God, because we're not. We're just, we're such cool hipsters here. We're like, oh, my God, what a nerd. As soon as you're gone, we're going to make fun of you. Yeah, this, this is a is podcast. That automatically makes it run by nerds. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So Imhotep actually served Dozier in the 3rd century. Dozier was renowned for being one of the first pharaohs to actually make a pyramid for himself. Is that Gozier as in the, the monster from Ghostbusters? <laughs> You'd have to check sure. with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis on that one. Yeah. So his official title was Chancellor, although there was some speculation that he also might have been a high priest for the Cult of Ra, which was mm -hmm. the son of He's the one with the falcon head. But he also did a lot of other roles. So he was an architect, he was an engineer, he was also a physician. And he wrote some medical texts on how to treat ailments, everything from like traumatic injuries to like the chest and head and things like that. So somebody decided, ah, let's make him part of the Egyptian pantheon. So they made him a god of medicine and healing. And he also became known as the patron of scribes. It's an interesting story because he wasn't anybody special when, when he started. He was a commoner, but it's just his abilities sort of shone through and people sort of took notice. He was an innovator. Yeah, it sounds like he was. Uh, How to the flood! In other words, these movies have absolutely nothing to do with him. No. They just used the name. <laughs> I think he just took his name because it sounded exotic. But yeah. really everything that is going on with the movies is at best loosely or loosely based on him. Like I said, that's why I think part of the high priest thing comes in. But even mm -hmm. that's kind of stretching it. And really, he's not a high priest in the movie. I think he's supposed to be the pharaoh's son. 
No, he's the high priest because Anaxia Moon was the pharaoh's daughter. No, oh, she's, a, she's, she's a vestal virgin. Yeah, she's a priestess for Isis. Priestess. Okay. Which yeah. I thought was hilarious because they don't have vestal virgins in Egypt. No. Unless somebody can correct me wrong, but when I looked it yeah. up, from what I could see, it wasn't really an Egyptian kind of thing to do. That was more of a pre- yeah, because he's referring to, like, my father had me buried. So I think he was supposed to be the well, pharaoh's yeah, son. I thought he said, you're for Okay, that would make sense. Very possible he could have been both. Yeah, also, I mean, he's supposedly, like, buried because he tries to bring Anaxunamun back from the grave. It's because he stole the Forbidden Scroll and tried to encant it. Yeah. Yeah. He makes it sound like, you know, it's this horrible thing to try to bring back the dead. I'm like, well, why would you have a scroll to bring back the dead if you weren't <laughs> supposed to bring back the dead? But you're never to use it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you guys, maybe you don't have the scroll that brings back the dead if you're not supposed to, you know, use the scroll that brings back the dead. It's like... Well, wasn't it from one of the gods used it to bring back one of the other gods, Isis or someone else? The original story goes is Isis was married to... Um, Osiris? Yes, thank you. Hey, good job, honey. I got uh, a cookie. She is married to Osiris, whose brother was Seth. So Seth had a big hate on for Osiris and ended up killing him. And then decided that wasn't good enough and sort of ripped his body apart and distributed it all over Egypt. So Isis finds out what happens and goes and like gathers up all the little pieces of Osiris and puts them back together. And then uses the spell to bring him back to life. Okay. And that's, you know, where the cult around Osiris sort of started. Because he's really the only one in the Egyptian pantheon that has a story like that. Okay, so if this ties into that, who is Toth and what does he have to do with it? So Toth, or Toth, was the god of wisdom. So he's usually represented as uh, a heron or an onkelstep. So he just basically wrote down what happened and everyone's just copying that? He's one of the gods that were associated with scribes and wisdom. That would tie him to Imhotep, I guess. Yeah. Which is probably where that comes from. I don't know why they specifically said it was the Book of Toth. The Scroll of Toth, yeah. Maybe because he would have been the one to chronicle what happened during the resurrection. One most likely to be writing things down, but it's not like... You he know, was live-tweeting it. <laughs> <laughs> Tweeting it! Oh my god, he's awake again, you guys! Write this down. <laughs> Hashtag Annie's move. Wait, what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm messing with his hands, lol. <laughs> Oh my god, I totally put his finger up his nose. Hello, uh. <laughs> Hashtag I am awesome. Hashtag I regret nothing. Hashtag seriously, my caps lock is stuck. How do I get it unstuck? <laughs> Hashtag never mind, I got it unstuck. So yeah, I think that's about as close as this film gets to actual historical authenticity. Yeah, it's very superficial. Yeah. It was, we're doing a horror story, we need a mummy, let's throw some names in there. It doesn't really work, but that's okay. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of like the third X-Men movie that they did. Or it's like Clash of the Titans. <laughs> yeah. The remake. It has nothing to do with the history. Let's just do a story and throw the names in there. Yeah. You know what, Clash of the Titans was closer to the original legend as opposed to this being close to. It was closer than this one is, yes. They took the same names and then they sort of did what they wanted with it. So then, of course, we have to tie Isis back into things by having her statue so. come to life and do the point of doom. Oh yeah, what was that? And you, like, then they cut away. I was like, son of a bitch. She points and then the scroll burns up and then he turns into a pile of bones. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really cool kind of fate effect. It's like, heaven forbid someone actually have to save the day instead of, oh, look, one of the ancient gods. Do something. And I guess this means that this movie acknowledges that the ancient Egyptian gods exist and can still be prayed to. <laughs> <laughs> and they can move. 
which is a bold topic for the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, it sort of opens a lot of possibilities, but again, they never did anything with it. Yeah, it's just it's it's just not a film that works. I love that in Nox in a Moon, Helen's supposed to be the reincarnated version of an Ox in mm-hmm. a Moon, and I'm like, okay, but why doesn't she speak Egyptian? Because Imhotep at some points does actually speak Egyptian. Because they weren't going to do subtitles at this point in time. You know, like when she's trying to get into like even the museum, she should be speaking Egyptian. It doesn't have to be a lot. You know, that's not a bad idea. Kind of like, you know, when she's muttering and she says Imhotep and everyone's like, Imhotep. She's still speaking in English. Yeah. No, if she's an Aksunamon at that moment, why would she know English? She is still channeling it through the head of Helen. Yeah. Yes, but still, if it's supposed to still be like the soul or the spirit or whatever of. And she does understand Egyptian. Oh, yeah. It's a film conceit. They weren't going to do subtitles at the time. That would have actually been pretty tricky to do at the time, overlaying subtitles over every scene like that. Well, I'm not saying that they had to have a lot, just at certain points. Right. They could have used it as a key card a little more, yeah. Just a couple of words. You didn't even have to translate what it was. Well, in the list of what this film is lacking, you know, yeah. a deep plot and character development, I think, Trump the using Egyptian. Well, it bugged me. <laughs> We are getting focused on detail here. This is important, Noel. Don't belittle this. (laughs) Just because we get really, really tunnel visioned on one particular detail, and I can't find a way to finish that sentence. Screw Flanders! I'm going to drink my tea. (laughs) Well, you know, the magical waiting pool was a translation device as well. Oh, okay. (laughs) You know what? I will take that. I will take that, sir. It's like the TARDIS. When you spend time around it, it affects your head so you can understand and speak any language. Nice. I thought maybe it was because one of them was wearing a secret Dakota ring. <laughs> yeah, Imhotep had his magic ring. <laughs> or the TARDIS was nearby. That he would like point at people to genuflect on. <laughs> he was like the Pope Imhotep. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, because he did have to kiss the ring! Well, he didn't kiss the ring, he put it to his forehead, but still. Yeah, oh, okay. Quite close enough. Well, I maybe, thought he guessed hey, it. Hey, maybe he's got lousy aim. Eh. <laughs> maybe it was a shoe polish in his eye. <laughs> <laughs> we have to laugh at that because it looks so bad and it's so uncomfortable to be like, that's a guy in black face. Yeah. awkward. Bad. And then we get the whole plot thing that just, it felt like ultimate filler of, they get their hands on the scroll, then he kills the one guy before it can be burned. So then he has the slave go in and burn something to look like the scroll, but then Muller comes in and says, that's not the real scroll, he just burned something else. He immediately figured it out anyway, so it's like, what is the point of that? Exactly. It was just filler. Filler, baby, filler! They had to get this film over an hour somehow. (laughs) And then, of course, we have, again, ripping off Dracula, is the little Isis necklace instead of a crucifix. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Which does nothing, so... Yeah. Well, it does save him at the last minute. Does it? Yeah, because he grabs it when he's having the heart attack, and then he survives. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. But yeah, then otherwise, yeah, it plays no part in things, except Isis shows up at the end. (laughs) Woo! Yeah. So the Egyptian gods are alive and still looking out for you. (laughs) I swear, it should just end on a freeze frame of, like, Isis doing, like, two gun hands, like... (laughs) Yeah, I'm suddenly picturing, you know, like, the Buddy Christ from Dogma? Yes, yes. The Buddy Isis. People would pay good money for that because people are stupid. Keep it an eye on you guys. <laughs> What's up? Do we have anything else we want to talk about in this movie? Oh, I have so many things I want to talk about. Oh, go right ahead. Okay, 
Saxon warrior. I mean, now it makes slightly more sense because you told me about that thing where they were going to show an ox and a moan through the ages. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she was going to be in a village that was invaded by them. I was watching the credits and I was like... I didn't catch that list in the credits. Yeah, they have one listed the Saxon warriors. They have a still of during the series of reincarnations where she was in a village that was invaded by Anglo-Saxon warriors. That makes slightly more sense now, but at the time I was like... Yeah, it's one of those things that they cut the scene, but they've then fixed the credits. That sometimes happens. And they show the credits credits. twice, which, you know, that's fun. (laughs) A cast so good, it's worth showing twice. I'm like, no, or it's worth repeating. And I'm like, it's worth a second bow. I'm like, no. Oh, maybe Karloff. Okay, so Imhotep gets up, kind of leaves the excavation area. And then 10 years later, we pick up with the story again. So what? He probably took time to regenerate to get his bearings on things. He was seeing the world? Like what? Well, or at least just the area, you know, getting acclimated to what the modern day culture is like so he could find out how to use it to his advantage. It's but he's so, he's so awkward. obviously doesn't fit. And he was probably also looking for an Oxunamun's tomb. Yeah, okay, that'll fit. He knew the area where it was and he just needed to figure it out. He needed to get himself physically able to do that too. So, I mean, he does look noticeably different 10 years later. So obviously he did have to regenerate to some degree. But he wasn't spending the time getting acclimated to the culture because he is the most awkward guy there. Like, <laughs> it's sort of like, wow, it took you 10 years to blend in that well? Good job. <laughs> that was a well-spent 10 years there. He blends in better than a sparkle pyre. I feel like this should be an SNL skit. Like, ah, uh, yes, can I please come meet your Earth president? Don't mind me, I'm just trying to blend in. <laughs> and he's just like staring intently at people. Don't mind me, I'm just one of the crowd. Yes, that's not going to stand out at all. Yes, this six foot what white guy in a fez, yeah. My favorite part though is before they even know that anything's really up with him, I think it's actually um, Mueller that's like, oh yeah, no, someone broke into the British Museum and they killed a, and a guard died because of it. It was Ardeth Bay. Maybe you know yeah. something about this person who I have no reason to believe knows anything about. And I love how they just pull out a picture of Imhotep, the mummy. Yeah, they just happen to... I'm like, I don't recall anyone actually taking a picture of the mummy when they found it. So, Mr. Bay, what do you think of this? (laughs) It looks interesting. That'd be funny if it was like a shot of himself. (laughs) (laughs) And then I love how he pretty much just, you know, sells them on it, like... I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, and it's like, oh, that looks like you. It's like, okay. Okay. So? Well, we are both from the region. Okay, that that made me think of community. Well, I can think of one thing we have in common. (laughs) (laughs) My other favorite part is, okay, so it's Sir Joseph. Mueller convinces him, okay, fine, you got to burn this thing, whatever. And then you have this long shot of, like, you know, he's sort of wandering around in the office, and then he's like, oh, okay, I guess I should actually get this out and do it now. It's taking him so long. Well, they had to give him Hotep time to go home and activate his magical waiting pool. <laughs> I know, because I was sitting in the scene watching this, like, okay, so you're obviously loitering to give him time to get back to his magical lair, wherever that is. I love how the hidden compartment in his bookshelf is, instead of being hidden behind books, is hidden behind a curtain. And no one will think to look behind the curtain. No one will penetrate this fortress of security. <laughs> At least he didn't cover it with a sweater. <laughs> They're distracted by the linens. <laughs> look, squishy fabric. 
Oh, look at Curtin. Oh, there's nothing behind there. I wonder where he has this hidden. Oh, that's a lovely pattern. <laughs> well, certainly not behind that curtain. We must keep looking. <laughs> I wonder where it could be. Maybe that's his whole plan. Is it so obvious? Of course, it's not going to be back there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then I love how we're talking about Muller now. He has to look at the sheet of paper under a magnifying glass to see that it's not the real scroll. <laughs> You know, despite the fact that I think he would know as an yeah. Egyptologist the difference between papyrus and paper, even when they're burned. And not just any paper, it's newspaper. It's newspaper. Which would look completely different than a scroll, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It would even still burn flat, whereas a scroll would still burn curved. The texture of the ash would be different. You could think he could just look at it and say, that's not the scroll. It's like, I'm pretty sure that's not it. Worst archaeologist ever. I love how we just found out that continuity glitch, too. How he says it's newspaper, but it obviously wasn't a newspaper. Yeah. He fails at everything! <laughs> yeah, this film, it just... Well it, done, sir. This film just doesn't hold up. Well done, sir. You're an idiot, and you can't do anything right. But I have yeah. to admit my favorite line from the movie. Good heavens, what a terrible curse. <laughs> Yes. Just, I don't know. That line just made me crack up. Like, it took so long for me to get back into the movie after that line. It's like, seriously? Yeah, I never got into the movie to begin with. So. Yeah, the fact that you got into the movie is really impressive. Only time I really got into the movie was when Helen was wearing the bikini top, but otherwise. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. But I'm a man. I'm so. really trying to focus and, like, because I've watched the other movies so many times. Oh, I know. I, I gave it my fullest. So at least try to watch this one straight through once, but. Yeah. It's a chore. It was hard. Yeah. I love when Helen says, she asks, I guess, it's supposed to be Frau Mueller that's watching her, right? Yeah, because she's his patient. They never really quite explain that. Yeah. That was just the way of getting all the characters together. She's his patient. Okay, so Mueller, you're back. Anyway, so Frau Mueller is taking care of her, and she's like, would you get me my negligee? And I'm like, booyah! And then it's like this robe. I'm like, that's not a negligee, young lady. <laughs> and then I love the whole bit where she's having to beg and plead with the nurses to at least let her pretty up a bit so that she can look great for Frank. She kind of like keeps flip-flopping back and forth between like, I love Imhotep. No, I love Frank. I'm like, the actress isn't pulling it off, so. No. Yeah, it, it wasn't quite enough to get the audience on teams, I guess. Yeah. I was Team Imhotep. Let's just put it that <laughs> way. Yeah, Frank, that's not going to be a happy match. <laughs> Imhotep would at least be interesting. She and Frank broke up like a week later. And then what's interesting, though, is it's Anaksu Namun who decides not to be mummified, not Helen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's weird that, you know, Anaksu Namun suddenly is the one who gets cold feet and is like, no, I don't want to do it. Isis, save me. Isis, save It's not Helen who yeah, does it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You'd think an Oxy Namun would be all for it. Like, mm -hmm. sure, absolutely. Yeah, because it's supposed to be this great love and he, like, he risks his life and everything for her and she's like, eh. If they were going to do that route, they should have it just be that, you know, she is a priestess, so she has this love of people. She has this other... And she doesn't want her happiness to come at the cost of Helen's life. Yeah, if they had that. It's not so much that she's terrified of, oh, you're going to stab me and mummify me, you. You know, it's instead of that, it's just, I don't want to live if you're going to kill this woman in order to make that happen. Yeah. Like, the motivations were just like, eh, it didn't work. And then also the realization that Imhotep has also killed a number of other people just to get to that point. Yeah. Like, there was so many other things that they could have gone with, and yeah. it seems like they just sort of picked the lamest one. Exactly. And they have to, of course, make him a monster by he just kills the guard. 
I love the shot where the guard comes up to him with the flashlight while he's huddled down on the ground. He's like, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, nothing here but us chickens. He's like a 10-year-old, like, quickly hiding the playboy, you know? No, he's the kid who, like, he covers his own eyes like, you can't see me, you can't see me. <laughs> I'm not here. <laughs> yeah. He'll wave out the light. He can't see me now. Oh, yeah. crap. They have flashlights now? Son of a bitch! If only I had spent the last ten years becoming attention, becoming acclimated to this place instead of being awkward. Instead of their magical torch beams, damn it! <laughs> I am so awkward. And that would have been an interesting angle to explore too. Is what was the story of Imhotep suddenly yep. waking up into this culture? I mean, this would have been an interesting story to just do entirely from Imhotep and Anaxima Moon's point of view. Yeah, yeah. but. No, that's not what we get. But they just want another Dracula. Yeah. yeah. I will say that the opening of The Fifth Element kind of reminds me of the opening of this movie, except that it was better in The Fifth Element. <laughs> well, Fifth Element is like the coolest movie ever made. I know, right? It's not a great movie, but it's a fucking cool Oh, it's a fucking great movie. Yeah. So anyways, uh, anything else we want to bring up about this movie? I think we've gone over the main points. We kind of touched on the cat thing. I still don't know what's going on with that. Magic super deus ex machina cat that never shows up again? I don't know. Yeah. They didn't care. Yeah, they didn't care. There's no reason we should. <laughs> I think that's the easiest way to sum up this film is nobody gave a shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows. Yeah. It's like they had an idea, but they didn't have any passion to make that idea come to life. The execution was just not there. Except for the makeup guy and Boris Karloff. That's about it. Those are the only people who really seem to care about it. I don't know that slave who got that spear through the chest. I think he was fine. He was committed. He sold it. He sold it. Yeah, he sold me on that. That that looked painful. Yeah. Okay, that part where they're talking about how the slaves who covered up the tomb were killed, and then the soldiers who killed them were killed, and I'm like, and then the soldiers who killed them were killed, and then the soldiers who killed them were killed. Like, I just had this, like, long-going pattern of, like, eventually they're like... And thus the empire collapsed. Yeah, that's why the the beginning of Holy Grail, where we apologize, the people were responsible for sacking the people who have been sacked, and then just sacked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on this film before we bring it to a close? Meh. Yeah. Double meh with the side of ambivalence. Yeah, it just it doesn't work. I'm so surprised that you two recommended it. We recommend it, but we recommend it in that like, eh, you know, if you're gonna watch all of them, watch it. Well, for a recommend is would you just go to anybody and say, see this movie? Oh fuck no. 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 Okay. I think we're more recommending it based on if you're going to look at like... As a Universal Monsters completist. Yeah. yeah. If you really, you know, want to watch the whole set and go that extra mile and like I've seen all the movies, then, you know, see it. There are far worse movies than this. Yeah. But there's even worse movies that are still more fun to watch than this. Yeah. Yeah. This this one isn't even bad in a it's fun to watch way. It's just so dull. This one is hard to get into, and it's not something you would really just like, oh, you know, this will be fun. Let's throw this on and watch. Yeah. More than Which is too bad, because that's what I was hoping it would be, and it really wasn't. Because, yeah, we've seen some really good classics, so it's kind of a shame that this one blows. So that's, you know, disappointed to see that this one just was so lacking. Yeah. Well, I think that'll bring this episode to a close. Thank you for joining us, Steph. Thank you for having me. Good night, Evie. Good night. Welcome, everybody, to part two of I Hate Love Remakes episode. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. I can neither confirm nor deny that. (laughs) See how good I am?
Nice. I'm stuck now in the mystery of who this person is on the other end of the line. <laughs> it's the, one of the cats. They've actually taken on um, my personality and my voice and are now podcasting for me. Cats give Evie her personality back. No, also... <laughs> we demand catnip, human. <laughs> actually, Chuck doesn't give a shit about catnip. He'll rip a toy apart that has catnip in it just to pour it all out and be like, BAM! That's what I think of your catnip. And then just walks away like he doesn't care. <laughs> Chloe will get high on it, but Chuck does not give a shit. He's like, okay. I challenge you and your addictive substances. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, Chloe's probably following along behind him going, Yes, that toy. And then that one. Yeah. That one has good smelling catnip. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically what she does. He doesn't even care about the laser pointers, like whatever. Yeah. Yes, I see your little red dot. I don't give a shit, but I see it. I will not dance to the tune. <laughs> well, joining us again is Evie's friend Steph. Hello. Thank you for coming back for part two. Thanks for having me. She didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was contractually obligated. <laughs> also, I'm her ride home, so Okay. Steph promised me tea. <laughs> and I delivered. Evie, you want to tell us what we're going to be covering here in part two? Part two, we're doing the remake of The Mummy from 1999, directed by Stephen Summers, no less. Yes, Stephen Summers. I used to be the hugest Stephen Summers fan. And then he made Van Helsing? I still haven't been able to sit through the entirety of Van Helsing. I saw it in theaters. We watched it. I yeah. saw it in theaters. I deserve hazard pay. I really like Stephen Summers. He did the, the Huck Finn that I really like. He did The Jungle Book, which has almost nothing to do with the original book, but it's still a really fun jungle adventure film. It's still good. It's still good. <laughs> he did Deep Rising, which is one of my favorite comedic B-action monster movies ever made. And then he did The Mummy, which we'll get to in the review. Then things kind of went downhill. Mummy Returns, Scorpion King, Van Helsing, G.I. Joe. Did he do The Scorpion King? He wrote it and produced it. Uh, that was so garbage. Mm. By G.I. Joe, he's literally like, I'm not trying. By G.I. Joe, yeah. G.I. Joe, he's Christopher Columbus on Harry Potter. <laughs> the once good promising talent just on the obvious wrong job for him. <laughs> I used to really like Steve Summers, and he's just been burning me lately. I still like his old films. Deep Rising is a film hardly anyone sees, but I highly recommend you go out and watch it. Treat Williams versus a giant tentacle monster on a yacht. Now tell me, Noel, does Treat Williams have that same acting style that he happens to also have in The Phantom? Because if he does... Well, no, he's channeling like a Kurt Russell, Bruce Campbell type thing in this one. Frack that. <laughs> I'm kicking you in the nads. I wear cups. <laughs> Good to know. I kick really hard. <laughs> Plus, I know how to induce a state of fear in myself, so it retracts my testicles. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's actually pretty handy. <laughs> now I'm having flashbacks from that Simpsons episode, but they're like, hey, Mills, let's try out the cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've talked about Stephen Summers, and I just want to quickly point out that he wrote and directed this film, but it did have a few earlier drafts by Kevin Jarret and Lloyd Fonville. And Kevin Jarret, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, he wrote Glory and Tombstone, Really good writer, sadly just passed away this year. And Lloyd von Vieville, I'm not familiar with his work. I actually did find his draft of the script to this, which is extremely different. 
and I got about a quarter of the way through it. It was so badly and ineptly written. Oh. <laughs> so Stephen Summers was a vast improvement <laughs> on Phone Vielville's work. Kevin Jure, though, I haven't been able to find his original script, so I don't know exactly what level his contribution was. But really good, talented writer. I, I recommend people check out some of his other work. Like Rambo First Blood Part 2. <laughs> uh, well, he did the original treatment to that, and then it was written by James Cameron. He also did The Devil's Own, which is pretty good. Devil's Own, yeah. And yeah, he had a whole bunch of other scripts that never got produced on for it. He was like kind of an auteur. He wanted to make his own films, and he just couldn't get enough backing in the industry, and then just, well, sadly passed away. Anyways, big talent there that was lost. But Steve Summers made G.I. Joe. And that is unforgivable. Enough said. Do we want to go ahead and jump into a synopsis here? Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. In ancient Egypt, the high priest Imhotep was secretly having an affair with the pharaoh's wife, Anaksu Namun. When this mistress. is just pharaoh's mistress. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's a mistress. Mistress. Okay. In ancient Egypt, the high priest Imhotep was secretly having an affair with the pharaoh's mistress, Anaksu Namun. When this is discovered, the pharaoh and Anaksu Namun wind up dead. Imhotep tries to raise his love from the grave, but he's caught and buried alive as a blasphemer. In 1926, Evie Carnahan is an aspiring Egyptologist working as a librarian at the Cairo Museum. When her drunk brother Jonathan shows up with a puzzle box containing a map to Hamanoptera, the fabled city of the dead, she wins the freedom of Rick O'Connell, the rowdy American legionnaire Jonathan stole the map from. They make their way to Hamanoptera, finding themselves in a race against American treasure hunters led by Benny, a slimy old acquaintance of Rick. Both groups arrive at the city, where they're attacked by Medjai warriors led by Ardeth Bay, who warns them not to uncover the evil buried in the city. They don't listen, uncovering the mummy of Imhotep and the Book of the Dead. Imhotep is resurrected, quickly killing his way through the Americans and using them and their body parts as materials to regenerate. Along the way, he unleashes biblical plagues across Egypt, drafts Benny as his sidekick, then captures Evie, who he plans to sacrifice in order to resurrect Anaxunamun. Everyone returns to Hamanoptera, where there's a big battle involving mummy soldiers, Rick swings around a sword, Jonathan makes comical merriment, Benny tries to make off with the treasure, Evie is brilliant at the top of her lungs, and an incantation from the Golden Book of Amun-Ra summons Anubis to steal back Imhotep's immortality. Now powerless, Imhotep quickly goes down with a stab to the gut, and our heroes hurry to escape as Hamanoptera collapses around them. Benny doesn't make it. So Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes, and honestly, far more enthusiastically and actually to people to watch and not just as a completist kind of way. It's good. It's really good. It, Stephen Summers, he evokes like the basic idea of the original movie and just really runs with it. And it's so evocative, too, of like all the old films, the Errol Flynn like swashbuckling stuff. Mm -hmm. And Brendan Fraser kind of looks like Errol Flynn, so that's working for me. And it has Rachel Weisz, and I love Rachel Weisz. And this is Rachel Weisz before she was, like, Oscar winner and married Darren Aronofsky, and then... I could still have fun. She can still have fun. Yeah. She had fun with this role. You could see it. Yeah. But she can still have fun. She, how, did you not see her in The Brothers Blue? She didn't in Mummy Part 2. No one had uh, fun in that one. Was and, so, any more thoughts on this one? Screw Flanders? No, it's really good. <laughs> Just, it's really good. Okay. Steph, do you recommend this movie? I do. This is one of my favorites. And yes, there are moments where it's sometimes a bit cheesy or the special effects aren't the greatest, but I love this movie. You know, he took the premise and he really made it his own and he did such a good job with it because it constantly keeps you interested and it doesn't get too tense because there's enough humor in it to sort of offset and it's everything works so well. It's such a fun movie to watch. 
And I have to triple the recommend. It's a blast. It's a good old-fashioned two-fisted pulp adventure tale. Summers, he just took the basic framework of the original and built a completely new story around it. This is probably the closest anyone has come to doing an Indiana Jones film without Indiana Jones and succeeding while still making it its own thing. Yeah. He's not just completely ripping off Indiana Jones. He's bringing a lot of his own elements to the story. Brendan Fraser, who can really be uneven in a lot of things, just really nails Lee role. Rachel Weisz is just so lovable. The villain is good and dramatic, and it's just it's such a damn fun, rousing adventure of a movie. It's hilarious. It's exciting. It's clever. It's not stupid. It's a little cheesy in parts, and some of the effects, which were very innovative at the time, haven't entirely aged all that well. I choose to take that as an homage to how crappy some of the effects were from the original movie. That is what I've decided in my head. I don't look at it as them being crappy. I look at them as being dated. They worked really well at the time. They've been kind of outdone recently, but you kind of still have to take it in the context of when it was made. Homage! It's an homage! (laughs) But there are still a lot of effects that actually do hold up. There are some parts of it that still look really, really good. It's a damn good movie and definitely recommend it. Where do we want to start with the conversation? this movie! (laughs) Okay, I'm done my part. I'm gonna go take a nap. Steph, you take it. (laughs) I do too. I picked this up on VHS when it first came out and watched it like once a week every week for like two years. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It was really good! I enjoyed it that much. And by the time I wore out the videotape, it was on cable every week. So (laughs) it's one of those movies. You just, you can't not have a good time with it. You can watch it over and over and it's still a good watch. You never really get tired of it. I mean, it's full of so many little moments to discover. There's so many characters. Little nuances that you don't pick up the first time that you watch it a few times later and you're like, oh, I don't see that before. Oh. What I love is that he has this great way of giving every character their own little distinction. Yeah. yeah. Even little characters, like the three Americans. They are so much better fleshed out than the original movie. Or Benny, or the guy who runs the library, or stuff, or or the guy, the jails, Winston. Yeah, Winston is probably in the film for less than five minutes, and yet he's an essential, well-developed character. See, this is one of the times, because I know you like Roland Emmerich movies, and I constantly bitch about the fact that he has too many characters and he doesn't know what to do with them. Well, Stephen Summers has a lot of characters, and he knows what to do with them. Well, Dean Devlin knows what to do with them, Roland Emmerich doesn't. I contend that Dean Devlin doesn't know what to do with them from Godzilla. (laughs) Well, Godzilla no one was really caring about. I argue it from Independence Day and Stargate. Eh, Will Smith is the only But thing. I agree, this one does it better. Yeah. Yeah. This one is just, there's so much going on, and yet it all holds together beautifully. Oh, yeah. Look at how many characters there are. Look at how broad the story is, how you drop in all the plagues of Egypt in there. You just, So much is going on. Yeah. And yet it never crumbles under that weight. Also, I would like to point out the fact that we actually have a romance that starts up. It actually starts up genuinely, not just like, well, you're both in love now, clearly. And we're going to tell you that just in case you didn't catch it. Yeah, I, I love the romance between Rick and Evie. Yeah. And it, it so naturally. And it you does. can over the course of the movie. And you're like, yes, this is when it's well done. Versus like, okay, we're going to tell you. And then these characters are going to act lovey-dovey after that. I love how their first kiss just happens in that one moment of desperation. And she's like, well, why did you kiss me? Well, I was about to be hanged. It seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) And I love how, though, she's still all a flutter because you kind of get the idea that this is probably her first kiss. Yeah. It's not so much that these two really are the best people for each other, but they really do have great chemistry. Oh, yeah. It really does evolve naturally over the course of things. 
I love Evie in that she really isn't your typical female love interest slash damsel in distress. They really did bring this whole different energy to her character. Yeah, she's such a different type of character. She's such a librarian. Adventurous, and she is brave, and she does all these things, but she's not uber-talented, and she doesn't pick up a gun and instantly become a gunslinger. Yeah, she's not entirely capable, but she wants to try. She is a librarian. Yeah. (laughs) She's just dedicated to going out and just, I want to find this thing, and I'm going to do what I have to do to get it. And also, I did like this, which was my problem with the first movie. They do have a reference to the fact that as much as, like, they don't care, you know, you have the Americans who mm-hmm. are looking for it. The treasure. Or the treasure hunters. Yeah. yeah. And they don't really care, but you do have that one guy who's just like, yeah, you might not care, but you still have to have, like, a reverence for the land kind of thing. And Well, like that one line, this gentleman, this is treasure. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I I like the Jonathan Hyde character where he's stuck with these Americans who want it. Well, I mean, but, you know, our heroes are stuck with the prison guard who wants his share of the treasure, too. I love that actor. I think it's Omid. such a good job. It's Omid. Yeah, Omid Dujali. Thank you. Yeah. Dujalili or something. He's in so so much freaking stuff, and I love him. He's awesome in everything. He was in Gladiator. Oh, that's right. He's in Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow. An underrated movie. Sure. Kind of. <laughs> Sadly, he was in Sex in the City too, but so were a lot of other well, people you know, that didn't every, need to be. Everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes people need a paycheck, damn it. <laughs> he's got like a very British. He's, I think he is actually British. Yes. He is a British comedian. Yeah. And he has like this very lovely accent that he gets to use in the movie, and it's awesome. Yeah. His character was just such a nice little treat of it seems like this throwaway character at first of he's just the prison warden that they have to free Rick from. But then he tags along. Yeah. (laughs) And I love these constant references talking about camels being all stinky and spitting and cut to him being stinky and spitting. (laughs) So what's that horrendous smell? (laughs) Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Where did our smelly little friend get to? (laughs) Or or like the... uh, Wait here while I go get help. <laughs> and then they just and leave just, him. And he waits for a second and he's like, God damn it. Then he it. realizes that they just left him behind. Yeah. <laughs> Again, just taking these small characters. And then when he dies, you it's... actually kind of feel bad because you feel his absence on the movie because he really did bring a nice energy to things. You've gotten a taste of, you know, his character and then mm-hmm. he's no longer in that mix and you feel it. <gasps> yeah. You got Joss! You actually get that with the Americans, too. It's kind of surprising how the characters that they built the Americans, especially the one guy who loses his eyes and his tongue. Burns. Burns. Miss Burns. They keep him alive. And then you have that horrible scene where Imhotep just comes to visit him, and he's having tea with the guy who's about to kill him, who just stole his eyes and his tongue. And it's just really a surprisingly powerful scene. I love the fact that they think this was, what, maybe PG, PG PG-13? PG-13. Yeah, and the thing is, the way that Stephen Summers avoids like a higher rating, and it's kind of like a flashback to what they used to do way back when, yeah. which is they would cut away and just show you like silhouettes or something like yeah. that, or mm-hmm. to show a scream. Well, you'd still have the idea, but you were expected to let your imagination fill in the blanks. Right. There was the one time where they showed him without his eyes and his tongue, and you could see the CGI pits that they put in there. Yeah. 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 But otherwise, they yeah, they played it up nicely. And that scream that the uh, actor gives right before it, like, fades into the scene at the bar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, that was terrifying. There's a lot of genuine craftsmanship and thought put into this movie, not just in terms of entertainment, but in terms of character, in terms of making you care about these people. And there's a kitty! (laughs) For a reason! Yeah. (laughs) 
if we go back to the warden, you know, when he dies, yeah, he's stealing jewels from a tomb, but still to get a scarab burrowing up under your skin and into your head and then run screaming into a wall. It's like, God, this is the guy that we were laughing at just five minutes ago and he died horribly. And then that his death is actually then set up that is paid off when Jonathan gets the scarab in his arm. Yeah. And then Rick gets it out. That's awesome. I mean, this is just such a perfectly constructed movie in terms of story and everything. Everything kind of folds into everything else. It's a very, very tightly constructed script. And I don't think Stephen Summers has ever done anything quite on this level. No. No. Not before and never since. This is his masterwork and everything after has just been like a slowly downhill. Or I mean, if we want to talk about Benny for a second. I mean, talk about the slimiest person around, but God, you love watching him. He, oh, he sort yeah. of, the look that he has, he totally took. He the looks Boris, like a weasel. The Fez and everything. I'm like, okay, so he took something from like the Boris Karloff character and he gave it to Benny, the Fez. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and plays out in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I if Arnold Voslow and the Fez would have worked. No. <laughs> I love Benny. I mean, there's just, I just love moments like Rick's just walking to the room and throwing a chair at Benny. Yeah. yeah. He's such a weaselly character, but it's still so entertaining to watch. Yeah, and then you still kind of feel bad that he ends up locked in a tomb surrounded by scarabs at the yeah, end. Yeah, and gets eaten alive by scarabs. And, well, like, and the oh. thing is, had he dropped the treasure, he would have gotten out. Exactly. But because he went and got the treasure, now our heroes can prosper from their adventure. Mm-hmm. I think the only yeah. problem that I had with the scene where he is eaten alive by scarabs, I'm like, I don't think that the air in that room would have eaten up so quickly. I didn't think it was so much the air was being eaten up. I thought the torch was just burning out. It sounded like there was a gust of wind that blew mm-hmm. it out. It could have been, as we're seeing outside, everything is kind of folding over itself. So something kind of sucked the air out. Yeah, there's a last gust of air from the door closing. No, I took it as like it took a moment and the air was like slowly. They needed a scary moment of just, he's surrounded by scarabs and that torch isn't going to do anything for him. Oh, yeah. No, it's not going well. (laughs) And then you hear the crunch. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, he could have crushed him underneath that thing, but he still makes it out there. And you think, oh, maybe he's going to make it out another way. Nope. But I love is that Rick, even though they go through all this together, is still willing to turn around and help Benny. Yeah. He's going to try to help him. Yeah. Despite the fact that they've been enemies, he probably has known Benny longer than he has any of these other people. Yeah, exactly. There's still a bond there. They're war buddies. Even though Benny abandoned him, ran off, and then locked himself in something that he wouldn't let Rick in. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And it just makes Rick's character that much more likable. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of a tough, no-nonsense dude, but he'll still help people. Yeah. I mean, he'll throw a guy off a boat one minute because he knows the guy will be alive and they'll just fish him out. But he's not going to leave him to his fate if there's some way that he can help. Yeah. But even then, when someone dies, Rick will keep moving on, like when Winston dies. Yeah. I just loved Winston. Like a four-minute character, and yet you get a complete storyline for this entire character. He was still such a presence, even though he really was a minor character. I love that image of him on the dune, just listening to the the record player while a guy is holding an umbrella over him. Yeah. (laughs) And I love the fact that he does go out smiling, like he wanted to. Yeah. It's a beautiful little moment that you get. Yeah. He got to go out in the middle of an adventure. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about Jonathan. No, wait, I want to talk about Winston. One more thing. Okay, go ahead. Someone spilled their drink. (laughs) Best line of the entire movie. I confess. (laughs) Yes, yes, when he walks into the fountain. So funny, and it spilled his drink. (laughs) I also just love the moment when the the water turns to blood and everyone just simultaneously spits out their drinks. Well, and the thing is, because it's like all of the water turned to blood, not just the water that was flowing from the fountain, but water that was in the glass already poured. Exactly. 
Well, do we want to talk about Jonathan now? Yes. John Hanna. He is so awesome. I love that he is slimy and reprehensible. And do well, brother. But he does genuinely love his sister. Yeah, I love the fact that he's the older brother, and you would not have gotten no, that. that's not the dynamic no. that you see play out. Well, he's like the older brother who just can't... Get it together. He just doesn't have it together to be the responsible one. I love his introduction, where he's just messing with the mummy. Yeah, it sets the tone for his characters. You're like, Bob? Yeah. yeah. Well, Ahmed, <laughs> Abdul, Bob. Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I just love that, you know, he loses the thing, so he just goes and flips up the mummy's foot while looking for it. Yeah, I'm like, where is it? Uh, There we go. (laughs) But what I love is that he's also a very capable character. He does Mm -hmm. know his way around things. He probably knows half as much about Egyptology and everything as his sister does, because he does know things. He is able to read the language to a degree, and so he's not a completely worthless moron. Well, he has some of the street smarts. Exactly. He had the street smarts, and she had the book smarts. Mm Mm-hmm. He's so clever when he picks the little puzzle box from Emotep. Yes. When he holds him up by the neck. Yeah, that's right. When he gets it out of the robes. Yeah. And then I love the bit where he's running around with the book trying to read the incantation and Evie is still having to help him translate it while she's being strangled on the other side of the room. (laughs) It's like she's fighting someone and help. I love how he's flapping his arms trying to describe a bird. (laughs) Which the little kid does in the sequel, actually. Yeah. I like that they did that send-off to it. Everyone really gets to play a part in that sequence in a very realistic fashion. (laughs) Like, you know, the book with all the incantations. Let's give it to the guy who can only read half the language. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like you can control them. Yeah, while she's being chased around by the Anaxunamun mummy, which was a nice little idea of, let's have Anaxunamun come back from the dead, and she fucking wants to come back from the dead this time. Yeah, Yeah. finally. She's like, get back here, you damn sacrifice. (laughs) She's like, come back here. You're my new vessel. And then just that moment where then he gets control of the mummy soul and is like, kill Anaxunamun. Yeah. And Anaxunamun's like, oh shit. I like the fact that he goes kill. He doesn't say to stop her, he says to kill her. Yeah. Right. I'm like, dude is badass. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, I don't know if you guys noticed during that scene, you can see that Jonathan has like a black bandage that is wrapped around one of his hands. Oh yeah, from where the scarab went into his hand. Well, they put that in because John Hanna had actually gotten hurt. See, I was wondering why it was wrapped so much around his arm. It's because John Hanna had hurt his wrist, and so they wrapped sense. it up and was like, scarab. Oh, okay. So we got to talk about Arnold Vosloo as the mummy. He's really good. This is probably like his defining role. Yeah. He's never been able to break away from it. Why was he in G.I. Joe? Oh, God. Uh, Uh, Not the best decision. No, but he was great here. He was great here. He had a great presence. Mm -hmm. But I love how they found little ways to humanize him, like the whole bit of he kind of gets his crush on Evie, and then the bit where he's doing the huge dust storm cloud, and she just goes and kisses him to distract him. And he's like, what? Yeah, and you can see his eyes sort of like, whoa. Hey, kissing! Like, oh, hey, oh, damn it. Damn you. You fooled me with sex! Well, <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> And then I actually really like, I mean, it doesn't always hold up, but I actually really like that kind of iconic image of his distended mouth. Yeah, it doesn't really look good with the CG. A lot of sometimes, the sand CGI doesn't work. Sometimes but... it works. Well, again, this is where it was really innovative at the time, but it hasn't aged all that well. Sometimes it looks like he has no bone in his lower jaw. It just right. looks brothery. There should be like an unlocking of the hinges, you know? Yeah, like 
I get the look that they were going for. And, you know, the first couple of times I saw it, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And after a few more watching, I'm like, oh. I think they overplayed it a little bit much. Yeah. yeah. And it worked better when he was the mummy mummy. And he yeah. was kind of disconnected and whatnot. Yeah, once he becomes more human and there's more normal features, yeah. it starts to look a little silly. Yeah, and there's parts of the mummy version, the decayed mummy version that work and parts that don't. Yeah, there's chunks where I'm like, you maybe wanted to have done a practical effect, but whatever. Yeah, when he starts to fill out more, it starts to become more obvious. <laughs> I like the decayed version. It looks a little animated at times, but yeah. it still mostly works because it does still convey character. Like, I love the bit where Benny runs into him. Mm-hmm. And he's just snarling as he's slowly walking up towards Benny, and Benny's going and Benny through. Benny pulls a fucking Benny and just starts, like, whipping out the different... The crucifix, the Buddha, <laughs> the cross of the Jew. Yeah, and then it's the language of the slaves. I like the fact that that actually comes up. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was neat that they really made that a plot point. It's yeah. so perfectly Benny, though. It's, yeah. it's just yes. such a great scene. But yeah, it's, you feel like someone actually went and did their homework on a lot of the lore that would have surrounded Egypt. Right. I mean, it's very much a fantasy film. It's not, I mean, like the whole plagues of Egypt are played fast and loose with, but you still feel like they did their homework in a way that gives it some depth. You can tell there was at least a little effort. Exactly. You can tell that they're having fun and they're really into this. Yeah. Yeah. There's passion there that there wasn't in the original. Yes. Passion, inventiveness, and a dedicated cast and crew. Mm -hmm. And Brendan Fraser. I had the biggest rush on him after this movie. After this movie, I was like, ooh. (laughs) Frazier, sometimes he works, sometimes he doesn't. Here, he just nailed it perfectly. Mm -hmm. He did such a good job in this role. Because, you know, he's got that kind of meaty rowdiness to him and this hamminess to him, and it really worked here. He's Errol Flynn! (laughs) He doesn't have that clean polish of Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn never had a clean polish to me. Well, I'll give it to you. Errol Flynn gives more of the playboy look. Brendan Fraser's very rough and tumble. Yeah, he's more rowdy. Okay, I'll give you that, yeah. I really liked him here, because this is a dude who just, he'll go out and he'll break heads to get the job done. He doesn't want to go back to Hominoptera, but he can see that passion in in Evie's eyes. Made a promise, so I will do this. Exactly. I love when he's getting shot at, and he's just like loading his gun. And she pulls him out of the way, yeah. Yeah. And I love it. Do you know how to swim? When the situation calls for it, the situation calls for it. Calls for it. (laughs) Oh, I lost all my books, my luggage, my clothes. Hey, Rick, looks like I got all the horses. Hey, Benny, looks like you're on the wrong side of the river. (laughs) I love that. And then, like, the look. But it takes him a second because he looks proud. And then he kicks the water. Yeah. Yeah, I love that it takes him a moment. And he's like, son of a... And that's what I love. This movie has a lot of really great lines in it, too. It does. I love Benny. Think of my kids. You don't have any kids. One day I might. (laughs) I just love this movie. It's so fun. And it just so pulls you in. And it just takes you along for a great ride. I think part of it, too, is they spend more time on the setup. Oh, yeah. The mummy doesn't even show up until like 50 minutes in. Like the mummy's up and walking around in the first 10 minutes. This yeah. one, I can't remember when the mummy's actually resurrected, but it's like halfway through the film. Like it's spent, not quite halfway, but we get some development going on but first. It's like they spent their time like developing the characters, developing mm-hmm. the plot, setting the scene, like getting everything set up. You get comfortable with them. And I kind of like that they already get the backstory out right up front. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome because it's just dumped into the middle of the original. Well, originally that was supposed to be kind of like layered in over the course of the story, but by just getting it out up front. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need that mystery of who these people are. Let's just get that out so we know how it plays in. What's with it? 
and then yeah, continue on with the movie, and it works. Yeah, yeah. That, it's awesome. You, you go from that, you shift into Rick and Benny fighting for I guess the French Foreign Legion, or I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then from there we go to Evie, and it's just it's awesome. And then I just love how Evie's introduction is the whole knocking over every single stack in the library. That's why you don't put your shelves in an effing circle, jackass. Yeah. I just love when she's like teetering on the top of the ladder. Help. Help. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Clean up this machine. Sons of the pharaohs. Give me frogs. Oh, I, I love Eric Avari, one of my favorite character actors. He's in, like, everything, too. <laughs> I know. And he, again, they made him a really memorable character here, even though he's in, like, six minutes of the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, again, he's, awesome. he's a minor character, but they did lots. Yeah. Exactly. And you wouldn't expect him to have, like, this really big scene at the end. <laughs> That's what I love about it. It doesn't treat any of the minor characters like they're minor characters. Mm-hmm. They yeah. all get their full story, their full arc, their full depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all distinction. I mean, even the Americans, you can't just blind them all together. They're three distinct guys, you know? I like how uh, when Emotep is approaching, I think it's one of the Americans, I think it's Daniels, and he tries holding up the jar to Emotep. Like, mm-hmm. he, yeah, to offer it to him. Yeah, like, Truce. here, you can just take it. And Emotep is like, you shouldn't have taken it in the first place. Yeah. I like the other guy. Um, I can't remember the middle American, the one who got killed in the room. It's like, get me a bourbon with a shot of bourbon. It's yeah. a bourbon chaser. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you your damn bourbon. <laughs> I love that. That was awesome. There's just so many great little visual things. Like, I love it whenever Emotep would explode into a cloud of sand. Yeah. And they'd have the big face go around. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. I love that Easter Island type face that they kept making a recurring image of in the sand. Mm-hmm. Like, even in the opening when Rick just comes across it in the desert. Although you think somebody would notice if there's this giant head suddenly appearing in the sand and they're like oh well i think by that point rick was running away so i don't think he saw it and it probably would have blown away by then yeah because when rick is out in the desert in the beginning it's just sort of sand goes flying past him and he doesn't know what it is yeah it's just something's whipping and we think your face will stop yeah i guess but i don't know it's a nitpicky point and then there's even the big face in the dust storm. Yeah. yeah. I really like that image. I think it holds up better than the distended jaw. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I just think it somebody coming across that and going, oh, interesting, a face in the sand. Look, a stone. Okay, but to be fair, it's not like Rick did that. It's more, people are trying to kill me. I'm running away. Yeah. Exactly. And then I also like the visual. I mean, it's only used once, but I like the visual of the sand pouring through the lock in the door. That was so fucking cool. That was cool. It's like Steve Summers thought up like every conceivable way he could demonstrate this character's powers and just folded them all into the story. Yeah. It's such a nice contrast to the original movie. You can tell he really thought this through and really came up with all the possibilities. Yeah. Like, you know, they keep talking about Imhotep's powers in the original movie, and you're like... He can stare at you intently and make very... All it was is the still frame of the glowing eyes, yeah. 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 Versus this one, you have so much versatility. Oh, but even in this one, he has the magical wading pool of muck. (laughs) (laughs) That, you can tell that was before they got the uh, water effect. Yeah, they hadn't quite perfected CGI water yet. It was too smooth. And then you like you have like the ghost, the spirit that comes up of an ox in the moon, way too smooth and plasticky. Yeah. But again, you know, context of the times, that was about as good as a god at the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole him walking around as the decayed mummy, 
that was some really cutting edge stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like the whole scene of Rick with the sword cutting through all the mummies. Some of them were practical effect mummies. It was a combination of the two. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, I can actually sit there and tell, okay, that's CGI and now it's practical and now it's CGI. But, you know, that was like a really cutting edge scene at the time, especially because it still used moving cameras. I like when he cut off the legs of the mummy and then it just kind of it falls, falls over his crush by the tablet. That it's by the block that it was going to crush him with. Yeah. I love how he can't reach the sword. So, okay, let's grab the hand that's reaching for the sword. That was awesome. I'm like, that's so clever. That was a cool And that's a nice little throwback to the mummy's hand, one of the sequels from Universal. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did also like when he cuts off Imhotep's arm. Yes. And then, like, the next time we see Imhotep, he's just screwing it back on. Like, I know it CGI'd it off, but it was actually a good effect. Like, they did a good job on that. What I like is that as you see inside the arm, it's not blood and pulp. It's still that kind of decayed mummy look. Yeah. I like that. That was really cool. That's what I like is actually they kind of retain that vampire aspect of they are people who are going to have to keep consuming life in order to maintain their presence. I like that when they actually have to get the box with all the super secret stuff. They're like, let the diggers do it. Yeah, and it's like actually protected. It's not just, you know, oh, and I open this box and it's in there. Like, yeah. no, it's actually protected. That right. was so much more accurate. And I actually really like then the scene of our heroes underneath the statue just banging away at the ceiling. Yeah. And then Jonathan playing golf. Crack. Boom. Yeah. The thing just drops. It's just because Jonathan's doing something stupid. It's like, there we go. And then I love the whole thing. Those bloody Americans. No offense. <laughs> none taken. <laughs> I think the only character who really kind of gets short set a little bit is Ardeth Bay. Yeah. He kind of disappears for the entire climax. Yeah, well, because you think he's dead, and then all of a sudden they're like, no, he's alive. I'm like, well, then where are you? Yeah, well, then why couldn't he have just keep playing a part in things? Yeah, it's sort of like the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where there was that guy that was supposedly, like, killed off screen, and he's very obviously killed, then he shows up at the end with just, like, a bandage on his head. (laughs) I'm like, okay. It's just a flesh wound. I'm like, I'm wondering if people just really like the character, and so they're like, oh, we're just going to have him live. I don't know how you would have involved him. I mean, you could have had it be him versus Benny or something like that. Just to do something more going on with Benny's arc. Or have to face Emotep and, you know, not succeed. He doesn't have to succeed, but he at least tries. Yeah, this is the monster that his people have been fighting to keep buried for all this time. You would think he would be more involved in that actual conflict. Seems a little more absent than you would have thought. I mean, you'd think if you're actually going to go story arcs, you'd think he would be the one swinging around the sword, cutting through the mummies, and Rick would be actually taking on Benny. Yeah, you'd think so, but nope. I think that is the only real major weakness I have, is just they don't really do anything with Ardeth Bay. He's just kind of there when they need his character and then doesn't do anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. It seems like an interesting character. They play him a little overly cryptic. Yeah, but they didn't do enough with He didn't have a fully realized arc. He had the beginnings of one. Exactly. I mean, you even have that whole great thing of him and Rick in the beginning where he's just looking at Rick wandering away saying, let the desert kill him. Mm-hmm. And then when Rick comes back, he recognizes Rick and says, this one is strong. Mm-hmm. You'd think they would have built that and just more of like a connection or something. Mm-hmm. His only real good moment is that one that he has with Dr. Bay is, do you think it's really worth taking the lives of innocent people to stop this monster? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I'm not really sure how they could have used his character more, but yeah. I think it's... that's the thing is why I'm not making a bigger deal of it is I don't know how they would have done it differently. Exactly. They probably tried and just couldn't figure out how to make and it work. And it just, it wasn't working. And so they were just like, let's just move on. Well, I'm wondering if what it was was that they didn't want to kill the character, because if that was it, then I can understand why they did what they did. 
But if they weren't concerned about that, what they could have had was him facing Emotep and dying. Yeah. Dying for the cause. But exactly. I think what it was is that they didn't want to kill off the character because they were probably hoping for... Well, I think everyone was signed for sequels. Oh, as opposed to the one guy in shoe polish in the original, we actually have like a legion of people that are under his thrall. Right. But these are actually more obviously zombified people. Yeah. I like that. That was really cool. Where, you know, you've got the sores and boils all over them, and they're also in Emotep's thrall. Yeah. I wonder if they got better after. <laughs> I'm going to just believe that they did. I, I'm hoping, well, maybe not the ones who got the car plowed through them. No. <laughs> no, obviously not. One of the, probably the most famous image of this movie is the Anox in the Moon body paint, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. actually, you know, it's hot, but it's also a really clever narrative yeah. idea of how would the pharaoh prevent his mistress from having an affair and then recognizing when she's having one. Yeah, yeah. and knowing yeah, if someone has touched her. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Actually, um, when I was younger, I read the novelization of this, and they don't just kiss in the novelization. Mm-hmm. It's much more involved, and I was like, that's kind of hot. And then I also just really love her line, my body is no longer his temple. That's like the best fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's Anakshi Moon probably could have been developed a little more as a character. Mm. But she's like one of the main features of the sequel. So he was probably just sitting on it until then. It works so much better mm-hmm. having her as the mistress than, you know, yeah. like temple virgin. And then just even when she comes back, she's like, fuck yeah, I want to sacrifice you so I can live, damn it. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh no, it's we like, have to oh, sacrifice you. someone else. Yeah. I can live with that. Bring it! That's what I love about this movie is that everyone was pretty much willing to live with what they had to do. Yeah, it's like, oh no, we have to kill someone else so I can come back? I'm oddly fine with that. (laughs) One moment I love is when the building is collapsing, Jonathan slips and drops the book into the pool. He's just like, how could you do that? And then they're like pulling her. Yeah, and then it's like when it comes back, it's like, how do we gotta go? No, we gotta go. No, the building has collapsed. We gotta go. But it fits so well with her character. Oh, yeah. That was perfect. What I love is that the building isn't collapsing because the villain's been killed or anything like that. It's because Benny got tired of lugging something and set it down on the wrong thing. Yeah, the self-destruct button. It's, yeah. it's, it's just such it's a random a thing. I love Benny. it. It's, it's such a perfect Benny thing. Yeah, but, you know, it takes a moment. Like, he sets it down. And then, and then it's like grind. the lowers, and then the building starts shaking. And then yeah. the shit moment. Yeah, it's like, God damn, babe! <laughs> I also really like that this one did also involve stopping the creature by summoning the gods. Mm-hmm. But Anubis coming to take away his immortality works a lot better. Yeah. Because yeah. the characters actually have to be the one to bring him there with the spell. Yeah. Okay. Which makes more sense. And then it doesn't kill him. It just takes away the immortality. Yeah, it just works better. Yeah, it does. You know, it's not all of a sudden super magic deus ex machina shoots him with a laser. Recite one spell and it's all done. Yeah. I will be honest. My only problem is it wasn't until probably my fourth or fifth viewing that I realized, oh, that's Anubis riding the chariot. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you can see the jackal-faced figure and all that stuff, but it's so small and kind of tucked in there. Goes by quick. Yeah, it goes by quick. But I don't, like, if they had slowed it down, I don't know if it would have worked. Yeah, I think what right. it was, was it's like, I think they threw that in for if you caught it, you caught it. If you didn't. Exactly. It's just he summoned the magic to take away the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all you really needed. I do like the fact that then he and Rick kind of meet and he's just impaled on the sword. And I love his reaction. Huh? Yeah, like, he, he doesn't quite, even he kind of, at that point, knew what had happened, and still, he hadn't processed it. 
Death is only the beginning. And I like when he goes into the pool, his skin is sort of like turning into... He's going back through the stages. Yeah, he's yeah. degenerating back into his original state. Yeah, into that mummy thingamajig. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't covered that we don't like about this movie? Uh, okay, nitpicky point. Okay. Scarabs as flesh eaters. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, they sort of feast on, like, decomposing stuff. It's like, oh my god, I eat you right now. And I mean, I get it. You need a scary insect. Well, I don't know that these were entirely supposed to be, like, real scarabs. These were, like, the fantasy scarabs. Yeah, I guess. These are, like, magic scarabs that live inside jewels. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's a nitpicky point, but it's like, if you know even a little bit about Egyptian mythology, it doesn't quite follow. It was an image. It was. It was a conceit. You know what, really, honestly, the scene of this swarm of black insects just, like, covering you and then, you know, just totally... The setup is a conceit, but they did execute it well. When Evie first disappears when they're in the temple or whatever, <laughs> and you've got all of them running away, and you have the one, I guess, the... the one assi- of the workers. One of the yeah, diggers. He falls over, and just the way the that he's shirt diggers. Yeah, and gets eaten alive. Yeah. You know, in like a matter of seconds, they sort of like strip his yeah. body. And you kind of see the way that he's twitching as he's being eaten, and it's yeah. just like, really creepy. Yeah that's where you get into like the plagues of egypt too they're obviously you know skipping a few and playing a little loose with things it didn't diminish the movie any at all but well they skipped a few but the thing is we weren't told what intervals these plagues were going to occur right so in fact had they not stopped and maybe the plagues would have kept going it's conceptually a conceit but they still i think make up for it in the execution oh yeah definitely Anything else? Cats are not the guardians of the universe. They used a kitty, so it's all good. They used yeah. the cat, and they used it to better effect as opposed to... When I was in the original, he just has a pet cat that kills dogs, and in this one, it's, oh my god, a cat! Yeah. Oh. But it looked like the cat from the original, too, because it's a big, white, fluffy one. He's just like, hey, look at this! And then he's like... <laughs> <laughs> I loved his reaction there, too. Oh. <laughs> ah! Instead of using the distended jaw for, like, being scary, it's, oh my god! I do like the fact that Benny has, like, this little moment of regret when Imhotep is devouring one of the Americans. He flinches and he looks away, and it's such a good moment for the character where he's not gonna come back, he's not gonna stop. Benny isn't evil, he's just a scoundrel. He's out for himself, he's is what he is. He's a lack of principles. Yeah. What did he put? Better to be at the side of the devil than in his path? Right. There isn't a lot of difference between Benny and Rick. It's just ultimately, what do they decide to do when the cards fall? Yeah. Benny picks what's easiest and what works best for him. And Rick is sort of like, okay, this might suck, but I said I would do it, so I'm going to. When you mentioned the scarabs, and this was another thing I remember from the novelization too, I, I didn't read it here recently, but I did read it back in the day, was I remember when they poured the scarabs in the coffin over Imhotep, yeah. the idea was that they would keep forcing themselves down his throat so they would feed him and keep him alive even as they're consuming him. Mm. And not for long, obviously, but still. That actually okay. sounds pretty cool and painful. It's a creepy idea. I mean, it's I don't know how technically sound it is, but it's a neat visual. It's a creepy idea. Yeah. I do like the fact that you sort of get a call to that when he yeah where there's that one that crawls into like into his cheek and he just chews it yeah mm-hmm. that's the diet that he's used to yeah i love though that even though he's blind and being constantly eaten by scarabs he can still scratch a perfectly grammatical yeah. death is only the beginning into a stone sarcophagus yeah he had a lot of free time mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. <laughs>
Yeah. Maybe he had his handy Swiss knife with him. <laughs> he probably just took one of the little hooks on a scarab and did it. There you go. <laughs> he used his magic. <laughs> it's magic. We don't have to yeah. explain it. And I'll it. think there's no magic super scroll <laughs> in this one. Hey, technically a sorcerer did it. Yeah. <laughs> a high priest. I just even love little moments like Evie, even when she's been kidnapped, she still doesn't feel like a traditional dad. I love the bit where they're coming towards Hominopter in the tornado. And it just spits out Evie and Benny. Yeah. And he lands on top of her and she's just... And she's like, get off me! She's just like kicking him. Get the hell off me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the Bembridge Scholars. <laughs> oh, I love it. Take that, Bembridge Scholars! I just love the constant mention of them. Well, yeah, she's like rejected by them and then she's just like, take that, Bembridge Scholars! And then over the course of the story, she keeps finding mistakes that they made <laughs> in yeah. terms of what's where and whatnot. Yeah, and it turns out, you know, they're not actually... All that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm guessing it was a whole bunch of guys and she's like a girl trying to get into a boys club. Oh, exactly. I do like the fact that Stephen Summers took a little bit from Anaxinamun's backstory from the original and gave it to Evie with the having an Egyptian mother. And that actually does play up in the sequel, too. Yeah. But does that mean that Jonathan does as well? Yeah. Yeah. They never specifically state it, but nor do they say that they're from different mothers. They never come out and explicitly say it. And they have that bond of close siblings. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts we want to say about this, then? Where's that kid with my latte? <laughs> He's not coming back, is he? Is he? We've just degenerated into quoting senses now, so that's probably... The, You're going to have to cut us off. That's probably the universal sign that it's done. Yeah, yeah I just, I love this movie. I don't yeah. really have anything else to add to it. This is one of those ones where I'm like, if it's on space, I'm like, watching it. Yeah, like, you know, as much as I bring up little nitpicky points, I love this movie. Yeah, It's fun, and you can tell that the people who are making it had a lot of fun yeah. with it. And that they're into this. There's a lot of joy being put into this, and it's not just like we're just here for the food yeah it's like oh crap okay we have to do this and then we get on with our lives and there's a lot of people who always say that this is just trying to be like an indiana jones knockoff i think this film is better than at least two or three of the indiana jones movies yeah i think i have to agree last crusade is the only indiana jones movie i would rather watch than the mummy no i would go with uh... i watched the first one yeah well, i've never gotten into raiders as much as i do last crusade that's mostly because of sean connery I'm not saying the first one's bad. I'm just talking about in terms of what would I rather watch. Yeah, if I had to pick between this one and Raiders, I don't know. I just I do. I would, I would pick this one. This one's a little easier to watch than Raiders, whereas Raiders, there's parts of it that are clonking along going, are we there yet? And that's why I've always had a hard time with it. Last Crusade, though, is always moving and always just has a lot of great colorful fun. I really like this movie. I think it holds up. And what I love is it has a lot of the same adventurous feel and tone of Indiana Jones, but it's still its own thing and it brings its own stuff to the table. Oh, it could have easily degenerated into it. Just exactly. Because they did do it at the same time period and, you know, some of the same ideas, like, you know, staying in Egypt and this big class-based thing, but they did such a good job with it. Exactly. And even the score. Jerry Goldsmith's score. The music works very well in this movie. Goldsmith is one of those composers who, like, every five scores he does, one of them is great and the other four are really phoned in. Mm -hmm. This is one of his great ones. Actually, I didn't say it for the first one, but I did like in the original the music that they had opening the movie. I thought that was just like a little stock operetta. Oh, yeah. No, I know it is, but I like that piece. That's yes. all I like from that. <laughs> they had music for the, the rest opening, of the movie. I don't remember it. I don't know. The opening wasn't bad in the original. Yeah. Movie, but it's I just like the music. Yeah. 
Well, I know what our answers are going to be, but let's get to the final question of if you had to pick one of these two movies to watch once a year, every year for the rest of your life, which would it be? Duh, the earlier one. Duh, doy. <laughs> exactly. I fully agree. <laughs> My sarcasm meter just broke. <laughs> oh, a sarcasm meter. That's really handy. <laughs> Stop. You're making it smoke. <laughs> We're all picking the remake, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hands down, without a doubt. Definitely one of the remakes that's superior to an original. Oh, yes. God, yeah. Well, this is one of those ones wherein they took, like, the idea of what they had in the original know. and ran. This is, to me, is what epitomizes the potential of a good remake. Yeah, I mean, I would put this alongside Ocean's Eleven as what a remake could be and should yeah. be. What it can be, you know, and it's like, this is really good, but then you have other ones where when it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Wait till you listen to the Fog episode. And since we didn't ask Steph what her opinion was on remakes i guess that technically counts as her opinion on remakes yeah, you know so. yeah i'm sorry we forgot to do that we always usually do that with guests is ask what's your opinion when it comes to remakes you've ruined the best of us well you can still say it now if you want okay as a general rule i tend to like the originals better because i find generally remakes to not hold up as well you know if you've done something well the first time you've set the bar that much high and it's that much harder to surpass it and do a better job and the times they just don't do it but every so often, I mean, you get, like this movie, you get the remake, and it's so much superior than the original thing. Yeah. But when the original is meh, the movie... Yeah, well, fair enough, but still. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which also helps with Ocean's Eleven. Oh, God. Yeah, oh, my sure. God. Which is the other example I had How? in my head. <laughs> I was, like, texting you during that, going, like, there's a heist in this, right? <laughs> I still have people who come up to me and say, no, you're wrong. The original is so much cooler. Well, then they're high all the time. And I'm, no, it sucks. It sucks out loud. And I couldn't figure out who the majority of those guys were. There were a guy in a suit and a guy in a suit. It was that middle-aged white guy in a suit. It was that middle-aged, oh, there's a middle-aged white guy in a sweater. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my head. (laughs) You can't see me, but I'm pinching the bridge of my nose and fighting the urge to face palm so hard. She is too. (laughs) Well, speaking of that reaction, why don't we just quickly go over the Mummy sequels? So first there was The Mummy Returns where Anak Moon is finally reincarnated and tries to bring Imhotep back, and we find out that Evie is actually the reincarnation of Nefertiti, and stuff happens. No, it's Nefertiri, because they changed it to Nefertiti because they thought it would sound too much like Titty. <laughs> Seriously, that's the reason. Oh. I, I'm not even kidding. That's the reason they changed it. Well, I don't know if you've heard this behind the scenes bit, but you know what the priests were chanting when Imhotep was trying to reincarnate Anak Moon? What? They're literally saying, your ass is wide. Your ass is wide. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Seriously, Ed, Stephen Summers pointed that out in the commentary and says, we literally just had them say it slow. Your ass is wide. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so you'd think he would jump all over the titties, but... <laughs> you'd think so, but no. I never realized that. Oh my gosh, we're going to have to watch that again. Oh, every time you see it now, you'll hear it. <laughs> it's in the beginning when they're trying to bring her back, and it's in the end when they're trying to bring her back. Your ass is wide. Yeah, no, I have no idea why they changed it, because I know Rachel Vice gave an interview on it, and she's just like, I thought it was, you know, a superstition thing, and they just told her, no, it's because it sounds too much like titties. Hmm. 
Well, it could also be that, you know, they probably got complaints that Imhotep doesn't line up with the historical Imhotep. Yeah, but it was never gonna because it's based on that movie. But then to save themselves the same kind of frustration of instead of having it be Nefertiti, it's this original character that kind of sounds like her. It's sort of a conglomeration of Titi and Tari, which... Well, the thing is, you so can it, still it say... sounds Egyptian, but you can't actually tie it to it. Yeah. But the person. thing is, you can still hear some of the characters call her Nefertiti. It was probably something that they changed in post and they didn't fix up all the way. Yeah, yeah it didn't necessarily fix it. Or they changed it halfway through and when they shot some of it... And they forgot to go back and re-loop some lines or something. But the movie itself, Mummy Returns as a movie. It's much more action-y. They were trying to recapture what they had in the first movie, and they just didn't do it. It doesn't have that same joy. I think a large part of the problem with the sequel is Evie is such a different character. She's so much more serious and square-jawed, and it lost that kind of bubbly sense of adventure and joy that she had. She didn't bring that same energy to it. He had a kid. That'll do that to you. (laughs) And then they stuck the damn kid in there. Oh my god, I hate that fucking kid. I hope he died. (laughs) It has just as much going on as the first film, but it doesn't all fit together as well. It just doesn't work as well. (laughs) And then there's the scene of outrunning the sunlight. Yeah, oh, it's still better than fucking outrunning the wind. All the pygmies. The pygmies I didn't mind, but again, they didn't really tie into things that well. And the CGI was still bad. The sequel, it felt more disconnected. Like, it didn't feel like they took the time to make sure that everything tied into it all as well as it did in the first. It wasn't as tight a movie as the first one was. I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So, like, some of the things that were a minor issue in the first movie now become much more obvious and a little more annoying. Yeah. Well, you especially had that one guy who was sort of like the way tougher, buffed up version of Benny. And I know his first name is Adewali, and I cannot pronounce the actor's last name to save my life. He gunned my head. Could not do it. Playing Lachna. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one, they, they stick him with the kid. Well, and then he's just taken out by the pygmies. And I'm just like, what? Blame? <laughs> they tried to recreate Benny and Winston in that other character, the guy who owns the blimp. He's so useless. And then they make Anaksu Namun a bigger character, and we realize why she wasn't as big of a character in the first. It's because this actress can't act. And she's been on other stuff too, but she can't act. She's very, very pretty. She's very. She works great when you need someone basically naked wearing body paint. And One thing is, she looks a lot of lines. She's beautiful, and she has like really gentle little like facial expressions that she can do that say a lot. But just don't let the girl act. She's very pretty, but mm. like I said, they were trying for the feel of the first movie, and they just didn't pull it off. And then we have the Mummy Three. Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. I never watched it, and as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't never exist. It never happened. La 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 la. Did la, you see it? I was considering it, but then Rachel Weiss didn't come back, and they got Maria Bello. And here's the one thing that they announced, and I was like, "We're done here." Rob Cohen directed it, and I'm like, "We're done. We're done." Here's the thing: Mummy Three is a mess of a movie, but the story is actually not bad. Jet Li actually makes for a good villain. The kid now growing up actually does have a nice chemistry with his parents, and now he's falling in love with someone else on adventure. I thought Brendan Fraser's still good. This one brings back a lot of the fun that was missing in part two. The character of Evie feels much more like she's written like the Evie in the first one. She's more excitable and and more energetic. But Maria Bello is not Rachel Weisz. She's not a bad actress, but she is so completely miscast in this part, and her British accent is awful. 
I know I've seen bits of this movie and I've never made it all the way through because I'm like, there's nothing grabbing me to see it. It's like they got the character right, but then they got the actress wrong. I saw bits and pieces of it and I'm like, I'm good. I've heard the accent and I'm just like, okay, this is a little better than Richard Gere <laughs> in uh, The Jackal. But yeah, that's not saying anything. That's not putting the bar high at all. I mean, you could get drunk and trip over that bar. Yeah. Mummy 3 is better written than Part 2. It's got a better core story. The characters are better executed. It's more interesting. It's more exciting on paper. Execution, you get this bad casting. Michelle Yeoh shows up and she's a fantastic actress, but they don't do anything with her. Isabella Leong is the son falls in love with, and she is flat as hell. She can't act with a damn. Jet Li actually really does a good job as the new mummy. There's some really interesting effects in there. Then the Yeti show up, which look like something just walked out of a ripoff of Monsters, Inc. And there's like this whole buildup of Shangri-La. But by the time they get to Shangri-La, the story is suddenly going off in a completely different direction and it's completely left behind. The story got drunk and fell over. <laughs> The story went crazy and then fell asleep. It literally goes to Shangri-La. It's like, well, there's nothing here. Let's go back to where we started. And then there's Rob Cohen's direction. Oh, my God. Why is Rob uh, Cohen allowed? Rob Cohen, he has this philosophy called cubist editing. Every one of his audio commentaries, he has to do this big philosophy on his cubist editing. I mean, he wasn't a bad director earlier in his career. Name one movie that wasn't bad that he directed. I like Dragonheart and I like Dragon the Bruce Lee Story. Yeah, I saw some of Dragonheart didn't really wow me. And Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, I think, is actually pretty well done. But as he's gone along, he's just gotten worse and worse. And if you see Rob Cohen, he used to just be like this normal looking dude. But now he like tries to look like Vin Diesel. He like <laughs> shaves his head and has earrings and he's always trying to talk the hip lingo for the young crowd what the cool kids are like now he's literally like a guy in his 50s trying to hang out with kids in their 20s oh my god he's pierce without the awesomeness that is pierce his cubist editing philosophy is something that he got from watching sports documentaries where you'll see like the same thing play out from like four different angles mm -hmm. and he does that in all of his action scenes completely unaware of the fact that when you do that, you're completely upsetting the momentum of the moment. Yeah, it's like you're suddenly like slowing down. The scene is going on, now let's watch this thing four times. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like not everybody likes watching football. Exactly, and unfortunately he does slip that in during The Mummy 3. I'm so surprised. <laughs> I think Mummy 3, it's... A better story than part two, but it's not as well made as part two, so it's about on the same level. It's just Rob Cohen doesn't have that kind of mastery that Stephen Summers did. Rob Cohen, he's not a horrible director. He can direct things decently. He can point a camera at something and not make it a complete goddamn disaster. Right, but then he has these weird moments where he like really tries to think outside the box and does something in the completely wrong way of how it should be done. And he's doing it intentionally. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work, no. He's artistic in that way that I'm like, are we all smoking crack now? And, well, let's get to our next film in the in the Mummy sequels. I hate you! No! The Scorpion King. Oh. Which I don't dislike. I do like the fact that in the Scorpion King, they were just sort of like, so remember how he was the villain in The Mummy Returns? Fuck that! I'm like, 
We're just going to turn everything on its ear. We just saw that. We, we just saw... Yeah. Seriously. Well, no, but this was supposed to be the story of before he became the villain. Before he conquered all the lands and became corrupted. Yeah, but the thing is, they don't really show that. Well, that's because this was supposed to be the first in a series of movies. They did some more, but they were all like direct to yeah, shittio. That one actually takes place before this one. It's him in his earlier years as a young man. I have seen the TV listing for it when I'm on the channel that shows me. <laughs> It is on Netflix. You go ahead and take that. I'm not doing it, okay? okay I'm I, not watching it. I'm not going to make you. I it either because I haven't watched the whole thing. I've seen bits and pieces and it was enough to go, maybe not. But you know, I enjoy The Scorpion King. It's not a great movie, I'm not going to argue, but it is a fun pulp adventure. As far as barbarian movies go, it's pretty par for the course. It doesn't screw it up. It's an entertaining enough watch that I don't hate it. And I like The Rock. I genuinely do. I find him an appealing actor. I like him in supporting roles. Like, he was good in Fast Five as a supporting character. Also, the one movie that I've seen of his that makes me just want to rip my face off and eat it, Doom. I love Doom. <laughs> Fuck you. That movie is horrible. That movie is a god shit fucked on mess. I love that movie. What the hell was that? There are not enough drugs in the world to make that movie work. I am not joking. I genuinely think Doom is a great movie. I'm just waiting for everyone else to realize it. Every time someone talks to that movie, I feel the need to take a shot because it's so bad. I love him as the bad guy. So, okay, A, he's obviously set up as the bad guy. I'm like, well, thanks. Yeah, obviously. So what? Yeah, and he sucks at it. He's so... Yeah, I thought he was great. He is so unthreatening. I'm I like, love I, that that movie had an entire scene done first person point of view. Oh, God, that was so stupid. I'm like, yeah, no, this is great. If I were playing a video game and I'm not. I love Doom. I'm going to leave it at that. You are a horrible person. You drown puppies and you hate sunshine and the laughter of small, adorable children. If you want to go ahead and use it, of course you do go ahead. I hate that movie. I quit, Noel. I quit. We are effing professionally. Ow, I hurt my hand. Sorry, no, I'm done laughing now. Okay, so does this mean we won't record another episode that's supposed to take place eight episodes before this one? Oh, I think we're going to have to, and then I will quit. <laughs> All right. I'm coming back for October. That's okay. my holiday, goddammit. I'll quit after that. No, wait, we're doing Karate Kid. I'll quit. No, we're doing Black. Okay, well, I will quit once we're done movies that I want to view. Then I will quit. But we've already done movies you don't want to review. Yes, but I still want to make fun of them. No, no. She'll review, but she won't like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm come on. Like, she, I, I've encountered that before with Godzilla and Clash of the Titans. <laughs> God, I would rather watch Godzilla and Clash of the Titans back to back on a loop than watch Doom ever again. Or no, it exists. So, do we want to wrap things up then? I hate you. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I had nothing really to add to the sequel once because I only saw the second Mummy movie and then I was like, I'm done. This remake series is kind of like that moment where the plane just gets out of the storm and Evie's all looking at it, all smiling, but then the engine catches fire and it just swirls and swirls and then plops right down into a dune. <laughs> yeah, just like a... <laughs> and then Winston sinks into the sand and all the heart in the series is gone with him. Yeah, that's a pretty good metaphor for it. I miss you, Winston. Come at me. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much again, Steph, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Good night, Evie. Good night. Wemple and Muller get an impotemps. Wemple and Muller get an impotemps. Ah. <laughs>
that doesn't read very easily. No, that's a lot of yeah, that's a lot of names. A lot of vowels. Uh, one, and I, I just realized I have to go and re-record that entire synopsis because I said Joseph instead of Frank. Which adds a whole other level of creepiness. Yeah, I'm the only one who knew. But of course, I only caught it when Steph said it, so it doesn't help you at all. Those darn wimples. Damn you both! They would just not look so much alike.